Last year, Hollywood moved a few miles east when cameras rolled in Maine for Stephen King's Pet Cemetery. This is the latest film version of one of King's best-selling horror novels, this time about a mysterious burial ground with a hidden power, the power to restore life. I think it's much more than just a scary film. It's scary, but it's a parable. It's a philosophy about life and death. It's a place, I think, that lives in everybody's imagination, where the things that you're the most afraid of and the things that you desire the most, and sometimes those two things are just like that. They're intertwined, where those things come true. Now, fans agree that Pet Cemetery was one of his scariest books ever. This one starts when a family cat is killed by a car. Just gets weirder from there. This one's directed by Mary Lambert. You remember she did the controversial Like a Prayer video for Madonna. Here's a look at Pet Cemetery. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. This is a bi-weekly show that's released every other Monday, and this is episode 172. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons, the Sometimes Dead is Better Foundation, and listeners like you. <laughs> On Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classics and new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. This is Gilman Joel Robertson, and my co-hosts are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, and I just keep finding the sweetest smelling reasons to come back to this podcast. I don't know if I want to know what those are, Josh. <laughs> On this episode of Horror Movie Podcast, it's a versus episode. Pet Cemetery 1989 in this corner versus Pet Cemetery 2019 in this corner. We'll be doing spoiler-free reviews of both films, and then, a little later on, we'll discuss them both in depth with spoilers. An all-out battle. We also have an interview with one of the writers behind the new Pet Cemetery and friend of the show, Matt Greenberg. Also, you'll get our Collector's Crypt segment, listener feedback, and oh, so much more. All right, gentlemen, we are here. We are finally at the precipice of getting to cover Pet Cemetery, a movie that everyone acknowledged that we could have, maybe even should have, covered more in-depth on the Women in Horror podcast that we did a few episodes <laughs> back. Well, also, you know, Joel, you were our guest before you were a host all the way back on our Horror with Stephen King episodes where we covered his entire filmography, 1976 to 2017 at the time. Yes. And this being one of your favorite films, I was surprised to look back and, oh, Joel actually chose not to review that film on that episode. We reviewed Christine, Graveyard Shift, I believe was the one you picked, yeah. Thinner. And I don't know, I don't, Needful Things were the films we picked from that era. And so I was looking back and I was trying to figure out why. And it was because, oh, it says Joel reviewed Pet Cemetery for Spooky Flicks Fest 2012. 
Jay and Joel later reviewed the film for Spooky Flicks Plus 2014, <laughs> yes. and then Jay and Terror Tovey reviewed the film on the weekly horror movie podcast episode 13. So. And, I, and I completely may be messing this up. I think I may have even mentioned it to Jay when I was going to come on like, hey, I might do Pet Cemetery. And I think he and I discussed the fact that, well, to be fair, you know, we covered it twice on Spooky Flicks Fest. He had covered it. So the thought process was I was more than welcome to. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, you know what? What's a Stephen King movie I hadn't seen in a long time that I remembered enjoying at the time, but, you know, it'd been enough removed that it would be a nice surprise. And Graveyard Shift was the one that came to mind. So I think that may have been the logic at the time. And honestly, I'm glad because that makes this episode a lot more fresh. And as much as, yes, you and Jay had covered it several times, I've never talked about it. I don't know that Dave's talked about it. And we've never talked about it on horror movie podcast proper. So I feel like we are coming to this with fresh eyes a little bit. All right. So let's go ahead and get into our feature review of Pet Cemetery from 1989. What is this place? I brought you here to Barry Allen's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judd? I have no reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judd? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of. Something really bad. Paramount Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. <laughs> Pet Cemetery. All right, so Pet Cemetery is a horror thriller from Paramount Pictures. It came out in 1989, and it was directed by Mary Lambert. And of course, it was based on the novel by Stephen King, and the screenplay was written by Stephen King. And it starred Dale Midkiff, Denise Crosby, Fred Gwynn, Miko Hughes. And to get us started, I will read the IMDb description, which is after tragedy strikes, a grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground behind his home with the power to raise the dead. And a little more to that would be the Creed family moves to Maine from Chicago and they find this idyllic home and a beautiful, the beautiful countryside. They're obviously there because they're trying to just escape the city. It's sort of the, the Brody thing from Jaws, right? They just, they got to get away from the, the city. And Lewis is a doctor, got a job at the local university. It's going to be nice and easy going uh, from here on out. They, they meet their wonderful neighbor across the street, played by Herman Munster himself, Fred Gwynn. It's all, it's all good. Everything's wonderful, except for the two-lane death highway <laughs> that runs between the two homes that is constantly <laughs> being patrolled by massive, almost out-of-control, Orinco gas trucks. So other than that, though, perfect place to raise the kids. Uh, it, it is uh, The film was shot in Maine, which is really cool, because I think up to this point, no Stephen King movie had been. And right. I think that was actually part of the contract that King has a requirement he had for the making right. of this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wanted it to be his screenplay, and then it had to be shot in Maine, where his two stipulations. Yes, and he had director; he could he get uh, control over the director too. Yes. Oh uh, yeah. Which is interesting because I think Mary Lambert at one point uh, does say that she went to meet with him, and he wanted to meet at a Denny's. It was he, you know, she said so many people want to in Hollywood, you know, they want to meet at Spago's or, or whatever the, the fancy highfalutin restaurant. And he's like, no, nah, we're going to Denny's. <laughs> it's like that. That seems very king. That's great. 
very blue collar. So anyway, it tells the story of the Creed family. And while they're there, uh, some very unfortunate events take place that lead them to want to take advantage of a pet cemetery that they discover is just down the path and on their own property. And um, let's just say that what they learn very quickly is sometimes dead is better. <laughs> and I will say that I'm a little nervous because being that this is one of my and it's still in my top 10, even though it's an ever fluctuating list, uh, it's still there. And I am a little nervous because it occurred to me. I think I know how Dave feels, I think, because I feel like he and I talked about this movie at some point in depth, just in one of our many our myriad conversations about horror movies. But, Josh, mm-hmm. I don't think you and I have ever had a discussion at all about this movie. So I really don't know yeah. where you come in at all on this. Yeah, I uh, at the time back on that Stephen King episode, which was HMP 124, the one that it came up on. I remember telling you, I've never really been much of a fan of this film. Mm. So uh, I since then have revisited the movie. I just watched it twice this last week, watched the new film, watched the Pet Cemetery documentary and all the special features on the disc. So I will say my appreciation for it has grown great, quite a great deal since we talked about it. Okay. Yeah. This was not a movie that I had much experience with growing up. Like I'd seen it once or twice or bits and pieces of it. I remember seeing on cable, but it wasn't, it just wasn't a touchstone film for me. And so my familiarity was with, it wasn't that strong and, you know, not being a parent, it didn't have the same implications. Now the idea of this film, like, the concept at the heart of the story is one of the most devastating, tragic, horrific things I can imagine. And I love it. Like it's the type of horror that draws me in the most. Mm -hmm. So I love this as a concept in terms of execution. I'm excited to get into that. As we talk about these movies. Excellent. What about you, Joel? This is a, this is a major film for you. What is your background with it? I guess. Well, in 1989 and actually let's see, since I have the good old MDBA in front of me, the actual release date, according to the MDBA was the uh, 21st of April. Wow. Oh, as we record this almost to the day, 30 years ago, that just hit me. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Holy cow. That's something. Uh, We're close. That's really cool. So it's a 30 years to the month as we record this, which is which is really neat. And my dad, who I've I've talked about on my other uh, retro movie geek, we've talked about uh, quite a bit, as as Daryl loves to point out. My dad really loved me uh, because he would take me to see all sorts of movies. And uh, my parents were divorced, of course, being a child of the 80s. I think that was maybe a prerequisite. I don't know. But the fact is, he took me to a lot of movies my mom didn't want me to see. <laughs> and I don't know if that was some passive aggressive thing he did. I don't know. But I was the beneficiary. So he took me to see this movie uh, on April, either April 21st or 22nd, because I'm 99 percent sure it was opening weekend, uh, 1989. And uh, we saw it. And it it's interesting because I had so many movies. I was a very sensitive kid. This would have been when I was 13. Highly sensitive. This was different. This movie scared the crap out of me, but it was almost looking back on it. It may have been one of the first cinematic experiences that I remember where, yes, I was terrified. Yes, it's bleak. Yes, it's dark, but it almost like it pacified my soul in some weird way. Like it just it created this sense in me of like, oh, okay. so horror movies you know, can be bleak and disturbing and everything else and have some really horrific imagery in them. Yet at the end, you know, you go home, go to bed at night 
And I, I believe it was John Carpenter in that Fear in the Dark documentary. I like to quote, he said, yep, I think he said it pacified his soul when he saw Texas Chainsaw for the first time. He slept like a baby. And it's like, it, I think I had that experience with this movie. So it's always stuck with me as something that was disturbing and horrifying. But it also it is in a weird way because of the aesthetic and a lot of the scenes that Mary Lambert, the director, created, just the look and the feel of it, and they shot it in Maine, I always wanted to be there. Like, I always wanted to exist there, sans all of the demonic possessing your dead loved ones <laughs> and them coming back to kill you part. But it's like that right. world, I really always like, you know, there's certain horror movies where, okay, yeah, you don't want to be involved in all the horrific stuff necessarily, but there's something about the world and you just kind of want to be in it, even just for an afternoon. And there's something about the movie that I've always felt that. I would love to see the that's uh, the pet cemetery. You know, you almost want to wish, like along lines of what you're saying, Joel. You almost wish that's a real set. Yes. You know, with well, I'll with, tell you uh, what the uh, the unearthed and untold pet cemetery documentary. They talk about exactly where the real pet cemetery was. Like you probably could go find it. Honestly. Oh, that would be so amazing, wouldn't it? Did you guys see that doc? I did, but it's been a while. I probably saw. I want to say maybe a year ago or a little less than a year ago. It's been a while for me, but I did I don't see think it. I've seen it. They actually interview the lady who built the original Pet Cemetery in that documentary, mm-hmm. like the real one that Stephen King based his on. Yeah. Wow. Which is crazy. Yeah. And she talks about like, we hired this kid to make a sign from the neighborhood and he spelled it wrong. And he was, you know, like all that stuff was, it was interesting. Well, just that King was astute enough, which I think is probably an understatement, but just for him to get, get those moments, those real life moments. Right. And just so right. perfectly integrate them. Cause think about how many writers would have written a movie called pet cemetery and intentionally spelled it wrong. Like how much guff do you think he got? And I don't know. That book came out in 83. I know he used it to get out of his contract with double day, but even at that point, he had had some really big hits. But I got to imagine, even at that point, still, he was huge, but he wasn't necessarily like how he is, like even by the 90s. Right. So I'm right. wondering, did he get pushback from the Look, we can't have it spelled wrong on the cover. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted, <laughs> but he's like, I'm, he stuck to his guns, I'm sure. And and because that it's perfect because how many people say either a why is it spelled wrong or b they don't even notice and then they feel silly later on when they're like oh wow so it's been spelled wrong this whole time and i never even noticed people say that <laughs> yeah well, it's really cool the thing i think about is inglorious bastards also yes you know there's another one tarantino's choice yeah but i love i think that's such a nice detail yes and it makes me really appreciate it because he very easily could have left it spelled wrong in the book but changed the title for the name of the book and yeah, it's <clears throat> so I mean, I do want to just mention a couple of the touchstones from his real life as long as we're on the topic. Yes, please do. Um, Stephen King actually moved to the small town of Maine into a house very similar to the house in the book in the movie along a busy road where a lot of animals were dying and because, you know, they were getting hit by cars. And then he rescued his son from almost getting hit by a truck on that very road. So that all of that was real. There actually was a pet cemetery near their home, as we mentioned with the misspelled sign and all of that up the road. Then he also took the death of his daughter's cat, which really happened and his feelings about that and everything was worked into the book. And then he also took the idea of the Indian burial ground and, and the Wendigo, which plays a role in the book, but not as much in the films. Although I will say, I think the newer film, uh, brings more of the one to go into it than, than the original film. And it's just a really exciting kind of thing to build a world around all of these little details in your real life. And like you said, yeah, it takes someone really skilled to then blend that into 
such a incredible story. But yeah, also with regard to the release, like is my understanding that he actually had planned on not even releasing the book initially. He didn't think it, he thought it was maybe even too disturbing. I've heard a couple different takes on that, that there yeah. may be a bit of a myth to that, that he had it. He did put it away in a drawer and he ended up deciding to use it as a way to get out of his contract with Doubleday. But I have all, I had always heard what you said, which is that it was, in fact, in his mind, it was it was almost too bleak and too dark for him uh, by, I guess, which is saying something right for Stephen King standards to be like, oh, you know, what? this one just goes too far. Uh, but I think especially when you consider some of his Bachman books, right, the, the earlier stuff he did, I don't know if you ever read any of those, but especially Rage, which he's, I think, since pulled after a Columbine because it's about a kid who goes into his class and takes it over with a gun. So, I mean, he had definitely done some some dark, bleak stuff leading up to this book. But I've heard that again. I don't know if it's apocryphal. It could be BS. It could be marketing BS. And that's a you wonder, right? Because was it uh, in that in one of those documentaries? I think on the uh, the special edition, which obviously we'll get into much later. I right. think Dale Midkiff makes a comment about when he sees King and he was at on the set and he's like reading the obituaries and he didn't know if he was doing that just to sort of play up the shtick of his persona or if that just really is something he does. <laughs> I, I, heard, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other one interesting note about this film just from the the background of it is that this was made during the writer's strike. And the, the reason it was made is because it was a screenplay that they felt didn't need improvement. And it was actually at the studio. I, now this is a quote that opens up that unearthed and untold documentary. And I apologize for not having the name of the executive with me, but as I understand it, there was a woman and she had the Stephen King script that he had written for pet cemetery and loved it and just thought it was incredible. And she had pitched it at one studio and they never picked it up. And then she moved to another studio and they never picked it up and they were hitting this writer's strike and they were in this meeting and they said, all right, I want everyone here to tell me what scripts they have that we can just go into production and don't need any additional work. And she starts to raise her hand. And the executive said, if this is about Pet Cemetery, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> and she said, well, look, this is exactly what you're asking for. This is a perfect script. And so they went into production on it and they, and they made it. And they were the, the thinking at the time was that the Stephen King era was over, that people didn't, weren't interested in him anymore, that it was kind of past its prime. And that's so funny to think about now as we're in this kind of Stephen King renaissance and maybe even the heyday of Stephen King adaptation that back in 88, you know, they thought the time was up for telling Stephen King tales. But, and of course, this would go on to be an extremely successful film and one of the highest grossing film horror films ever directed by a woman. And so it's, it's interesting. Well, according to one of the things I read, it said it was the highest grossing horror film of 89. Now I don't oh, have, also I don't, I, I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but that was one of the claims anyway. But yeah, it's interesting to note that idea of King's work being passe and it's time, you know, nobody wants to see any of his stuff. I have this theory and we may have talked about it on the Stevie King episode when I was on before, but if you really look at there's almost as if there's been at least three pretty big phases you you move forward though i would argue now has the potential anyway to maybe even be an overall bigger renaissance not just because of the stuff going to the big screen but like gerald's game on netflix which i'm assuming you both have seen that i thought it was phenomenal yeah. so mm-hmm. you know and and, and i and i just think that now we do have had a couple other ones that have been a bit of misses in fact uh daryl and i were just discussing this on one of the past episodes of retro movie geek we talked about both under the dome i don't know if either of you muddled through that or no. the tv version of the mist i watched both for seasons of that 
and I will not be revisiting them. <laughs> so mm, that's too bad. Yeah, they were they were rough. They were rough. But there's also the Castle Rock show. Yes. There's the John F. Kennedy thing that you oh, love. Oh, eleven twenty two sixty three. Thank you for reminding me. Oh my god, I love that so much. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and also, of course, the Dark Tower was not a, a huge success. No. But still, I think by and large, we're in a huge Stephen King renaissance right now. Just the fact that all these things are being made, if nothing else. Yes, for sure. And I would do want to mention this so we didn't slip off the radar. I looked up which of Stephen King's sons was the one he saved from uh, the truck almost hitting Joe Hill. I'm guessing Joe. Hill. Actually, I thought so, too. I was hoping it was in a way. But no, uh, because only I guess of his sons, both of whom are writers. And now is his, is his daughter. Uh, does she is she a writer as well? I don't know if anybody. She is actually a preacher. She's a she's like a clergy person. OK. All right. Cool. Yeah, it's it was actually Owen. According to this thing I came across it, it was Owen uh, King, who is uh, he actually I know did a book not that long ago with his dad. They co-wrote one yeah. guy called Sleeping Beauties, mm-hmm, which I, I have not read. That, yeah. So hmm. speaking of books in, in the King pantheon, have either of you read Pet Cemetery? No, no. OK, I did, but it's probably been 25 years. I read it in high school, like 11th, 12th grade. Honestly, again, back to like now that this the themes of this are working so well on me, this is definitely one I'm going to buy. And actually, I actually tried to buy it the other day, but it was all sold out at the bookstore. (laughs) Well, you you really will. You should. It's I again, long time since I've read it. And it's a bit obvious to say, oh, it's fantastic, you know, because it's a King book. So a lot of his books are great. Some are not perfect, but they're usually, especially the early stuff, it's really good. It is a fantastic book and it will actually scare you. And there's things in it that they don't have a chance to go in in either of these two versions of of the story in, in cinematic form that work, yeah. I think, just better on the page. So, yeah, I read, I read a lot of comparisons. I read probably like five different articles comparing the book to the original film mm-hmm. and then was able to extrapolate that to the new film as sure, well. So sure. I have some idea of that. And I'd like to get into that definitely when we get into our verses episode. Just one thing before we go any further, though. What, Dave, what's your background with this original film? Uh, I had, to be honest, I had not seen it until many years later. And I remember talking to, to Jay about this because it was one of his favorites. I didn't see it until I reviewed it on the blog. So we're looking at about four years ago was the okay. first time I saw this film. Yeah. Um, and I was impressed. I really was. And I was really upset that I hadn't seen it earlier. I can relate to that. There's been so many occasions where I fight you. You come across that movie, especially if it's one you've heard about a lot. But for whatever reason, you know, you don't get a chance to see something. And goes, with, in my in my instance is my brother does not watch horror movies. He, he doesn't like them. In 89, he was in the Air Force. All right. And he you know, he has his friends in the Air Force. One night they all recommend they go to a movie and I believe it was Pet Cemetery. And I think he was too chicken to tell them I don't <laughs> like horror movies. So he actually went and saw it and he said one of the scary, it like scared the living hell out of him, scared mm-hmm. the living hell out of him <laughs> because he's not a horror guy. Now I know he's not a horror guy. I wasn't staying away from it because it scared him. I can't say why I was staying away from it, to be honest with it. But every time I heard Pet Cemetery, I'm like, oh, that's the one horror movie my brother has seen. <laughs> and I just never got around to watching it. it was, I wasn't avoiding it. I wasn't afraid to see it, and, you know, because I don't I never really would never trust his opinion on horror movies because he has no basis of, you know, comparison. Sure. Um, but that just was always in the back of my mind. Oh, that's the, the one horror movie my brother saw. Yeah. I mean, it's also interesting thinking about it in the history of cinema because one of the reasons that 
the studios didn't want to move forward with this is slashers were kind of at the end of the, we were kind of at the end of the slasher cycle. And that's how people were thinking about horror at the time. And I think audiences, I mean, just speaking for myself, probably too, this didn't necessarily appeal to me because I was really digging on 80s slashers probably in this era and vampire movies, and werewolf movies and stuff like that. And so I just, see, you know, honestly seeing gauge in the trailer, like uh, just thinking, yeah, I'm not really buying into that, you know, and honestly that mm-hmm. still is in some ways, one of the weaker elements for me, um, just the idea of without any spoilers at this point, but creepy killer kids, you know, I like a good creepy kid movie, but it, I think the execution of that is huge, like hugely important in my enjoyment. Like I really have to believe that they're dangerous and child performances are just hard mm-hmm. to pull off. And especially the thing that really struck me on my recent review watching of this film is that he is so little and young. Yes. I think when I was not, you know, I was not as young as him, but I was pretty young when I saw it and I recognized him from like kindergarten cop and things like this. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was seeing him that little and now having kids that little, it's like, it's shocking that he could even, he did what he did. Yeah. yeah. In any form. Yes. And, right. and it's shocking that they went with a kid that young. I think if I were directing a film like this, I'd be like, well, we got to get like a five-year-old to do this role. To play like, three. No three-year-old. Yeah. 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 Right. There's no way that you can do this, but they did it. Yeah. Um, Mary Lambert uh, just praised him up and down. I mean, they, uh, they wanted her to get twins like she did for the older girl because of mm-hmm. child labor laws and everything. And she said, no, this is, he can do it. And he was really into it. He would wait for action. He would wait for cut. He would hit his mark. And this is what a three-year-old. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. He's really good. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, well, and I think for me, I am probably further to the other side because I do like a good creepy kid movie a lot. And I do not believe the argument that says, you know, oh, I could kick their butt. Well, first off, if they're possessed by some kind of demonic force, probably not. <laughs> yeah, right. right. So there, there's that factor. Secondly, I will say that when I made the comment about certain things work better on the page, <laughs> I I think right. that that's one of those examples. But to your point, I am always as many times as I've seen this movie, I am always suitably impressed by how that kid, especially his just re- his reactions to things. It's so genuine. In fact, there's a couple of times where you always wonder, like, did he get hurt? Like was I mean, you know, they didn't oh, yeah. hurt him to get the, the moment. <laughs> but you're thinking and Mary, I don't yeah. know if you watched the commentary, which we'll get into later. But, you know, Mary yeah. Lambert, I know, has said that, you know, the none of the animals and none of the kids they all you know, went out of their way to make sure everybody was safe and they even would you know teach miko hughes right he's the actor mm-hmm. and they would they would have him think it was a game and they would play games they really tried to keep him from seeing too much blood and you know so they really were cautious but there's a couple moments where you're like that okay <laughs> that seems like a really genuine oh, yeah. reaction you know so yeah when that yeah, uh, yeah we'll get into it yeah, later we'll get into but it. yes definitely definitely yeah there's a moment with a cat that I just think there's no way that this cat wasn't severely messed up for the <laughs> I know exactly the moment you're talking about. Yep. I'm just like, it's eyeballs are touching gravel. That's yeah. not good. Yeah. Right. And then, and then, yeah, there is definitely one shot with Miko where I think that had to hurt. Yeah. Yep. And I think we're talking about the same one there too. <laughs> but also I, I don't know. I, on the, you know, obviously it sounds like the special features on the version you guys have are different, but the behind the scenes from the time that I saw with, uh, who is now Heather Langenkamp's husband, but he was one of the makeup guys on mm-hmm. the, on the film. 
he talked about how uh, there's a moment with with Mika when Fred Gwynn, <clears throat> where they interact, that severely messed Mika up in real life. That he was traumatized. And really, they had, oh, wow. they had they had done their due diligence. They thought in trying to make it feel fun and like a game, and and uh, you know that it would be you know not a big deal and educate him about the, how the makeup works and everything. But it's still like really freaked him out. So that's too bad. Hmm. So should we jump deeper then into the plot of this film? Yes, I say we do. Josh, do you want to do you want to dig into it? Yeah. So we basically I mean, I think it's interesting that it is called Pet Cemetery. I think, you know, in my mind, having not really like had a memory of the film, I was surprised to learn that there there was this additional McMack burial ground beyond the pet cemetery because I, I kind of, for, in my memory that had just been the pet cemetery where the burials take place, but they, they go up to the cemetery and as Fred Gwynn's character says, but by the way, he is so good in the movie. Fantastic. I, oh yeah, I, absolutely. The little boy, as we mentioned, Miko Hughes, I think he's amazing for his age. Other than him and Fred Gwynn, I think the rest of the cast is not great. And I think that's, for me, the biggest distraction for me from this film. I think Denise Crosby and Dale Midkiff, especially for me, were just like grating to watch. So that was huh. that was probably my biggest complaint with the film. But um, I don't know. Do you guys want to maybe respond to that before we, we move yeah, on? I, I, didn't, I, I didn't get that. I thought they... Uh, we're okay. I thought Denise Crosby was really strong in that scene where she's going into the past and reliving uh, uh, the whole Zelda affair. I thought she did a good job uh, narrating that and uh, and conveying the emotion of that. I haven't seen it as much as everybody, but I didn't have a problem with them, uh, to be honest with you. I will say that I find them to be serviceable for the roles. There are moments, Midkiff especially has got a lot of static from, you're not the only one to say that, Josh. I've heard a lot of people actually make that argument. And I don't know if it's the nostalgia talking. I always feel like I have to be careful, get the nostalgia goggles on, right? The, the C&D kicks in. But yeah. there, I, I watched it. I tried to be as objective as possible this time and really say, okay, watch the performance. And there were moments that were a little wooden, a little, you know, but I feel like there's a couple of key moments in this movie where he so nails it that all else for me is forgiven. That there, there's one key moment, and I think you guys know what I'm talking about since we're trying to keep it spoiler free. That right. I don't care yeah. how many times I see this freaking movie, and as a father, it makes it way worse. That when he reacts the way he does, and what ha the, just the way that sequence plays out, I get teary eyed. I get my whole. I feel like my skin just goose flesh over and just my hair well if i don't have hair of course i'm bald but you know the, my theoretical hair <laughs> rises <laughs> my eyebrows they rise up <laughs> and i just get i get goose flesh and i'm completely just chilled to the bone every time i feel like yes that's exactly how you would react that's it aside from just going completely catatonic that's exactly what you would do so i feel like there's moments in it that feel they're melodramatic. Like there's a melodrama to this movie that uh, I think other versions of it may not possess. But for me personally, it it needs that because it accentuates the horror of certain key hmm. moments in the movie. Hmm. Yeah, I think he just he's not terrible. But I, you know, I think a lot of the King movies from this era for me always had kind of like a made for TV vibe. And this movie doesn't because the cinematography and an approach to it is so good 
but there, but there are elements to that. And I think for me, Denise Crosby, Dale Midkiff, and the fact that Fred Gwynn's even cast in it, that also lends that kind of vibe to it, even though he's extraordinarily good in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's just, he, I feel like Dale Midkiff really underplays the emotion. I got that at the beginning. I did yeah. get that at the beginning. I didn't think so much as as it was going on, and I did. Ag- I agree with Joel about that one scene. Also, yeah. I mean, it's it's an interesting mix of flat and and melodramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it, there's not a lot of middle ground. But anyway, I, I don't want to tar- keep harping on the guy. He's fine. He's not bad. But I I will say when I heard about the remake, I that was one of the things that made me most excited. Is I want to see the sorrow in a film like this, you know? And mm-hmm. I don't know that he was able to get to the depths of what that might look like. Hmm. And I will so. say, and as one who has this in their top 10, right. And has an obvious yeah. inherent bias towards this movie. And I acknowledge that up front. I will tell you, I don't think you're, I can't say you're wrong. I think I see where you're coming from with that. I see that that cast could easily have been in the ABC movie of the week version of Pet Cemetery, right? When you look at it and when and you look at the cast in the TV version of it, which I have a soft place in my heart because I remember seeing it yeah. when it first aired and, and loving it. But look at the cast and it's very yeah. TV movie. That's a fantastic cast, but it, it has that vibe. And yes, I think both of them, I think you, I could see now at the time when it came out, maybe a little less or so. Now, while Denise Crosby was coming off of, I think at this point, she, I don't know if she was done with Next Generation or she was still in it. I don't know if she was, you know, still in it or not. I think she might have been. This would be a much better. She was question. done. Was she done no, at this point? Was, yeah, eighty-seven is is when Next Generation started. Yep. And I don't think she got through the first season, so she was. Done was she with done it. by the first season? Well, I always felt like she was on there longer for some reason. I'm pretty sure her character <laughs> you might be right. yeah. is gone in the first season. Then makes guest appearances. Okay, time, you know, gotcha. later on, but I'm pretty mm. sure she was out by the first season. And Dill Medkiff was a complete unknown uh, for me as a kid, of course. Like, both of these were other than I had watched Next Generation, so I knew who she was. And Fred right. Gwynn, I think, because he's so removed from being Herman Munster, even though he obviously has a very distinct look. I think right. even as a kid, as much as I was aware of the Munsters, I don't know that I knew that that was the same guy. Like, I think it would have probably wow. took me afterwards. My dad saying, oh, you know, that's Herman Munster, right? I probably like, what? You know, I think I would have done that as a kid more than likely. Right. I was a bit of a simpleton, right. but the point is, is that what an idiot. Yeah, what a mor- <laughs> what a maroon. Um, but I think that I see your point. Like looking at through adult eyes, I I think if I came to this movie now, that would be the vibe. It's almost like they cast it because it was initially meant to be a TV movie adaptation, and then at the eleventh hour, they're like, "Wow, we've really got something here. Let's dump a whole lot more money on it and really shoot it like an actual real cinematic movie." And like, that's is what that true? Is that the? Oh no, no, I'm saying that's what it feels like. I think that's, that's what, what it feels, feels like. like. Oh yeah, I can see. And that. they almost. I was gonna say. That would make a lot of sense because I heard that the novel had a lot of sex in it that they cut out of the script. And I wonder why, you know, I mean, I don't feel like it needed it, but I but I did wonder why King chose to omit all the sex scenes from the novel. Hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, that might be wise if they was meant for No, I totally, that was completely 100% um, theoretical. I don't, I have no evidence to back that up at all. Let's see. But they, they almost didn't cast Fred Gwynn because of the Herman monster, they thought it would take people out of the movie. And uh, I get it because I can't see anything else when I see him like that. And that's a shame. So deeply ingrained in my mind. That's a shame because he was, he so detested the connection with Herman monster later in life. I heard that he was at a, a gathering somewhere that Al Lewis happened to be at the same gathering. Fred Gwynn wouldn't even talk to him. Like he wouldn't even look at him and they were standing next to each other. He wouldn't even look at him. He so wanted to get away 
from Herman Munster was I, he, he just really ended up really detesting the connection to that part because he wanted to do more. And I get the feeling he was not allowed to do more for a lot of years because of that connection. And I'm glad they overlooked it with Pet Cemetery because you could see what he could do. I'll say one other thing that I know will be really unpopular amongst uh, Pet Cemetery fans. I really do not like Brad Greenquist's performance as Victor Pascal. I just interesting. I, it feels so uneven. Like sometimes he's being like haunting and ghostly. Other times he's kind of goofing, like joking around. Like he, you know, it's very an American world from London. And I have to assume that's where they got the idea. But I think that's character. in the I think it's in the script because even Mary Lambert talks about how mm-hmm. his character in the script adds some comic relief. Yes, she does. Yeah, which I'm fine with it being comic, but it just it seems uneven. Like it seems like he's not in the same mode throughout. You know what I mean? Like he's, he seems like he's, I don't know. There's not a I, lot of consistency to that character for me. I thought it was a little bit, a, a little bit odd until I heard the commentary, mm-hmm. which I guess yeah. we'll get into later on because it, it's interesting how Mary Lambert saw that character. Yeah. I'm okay with it being comedy, but I just think sometimes he's deathly serious and haunting and other times he's, and then also, you know, you have this thing where Brad Greenquist talked about, he saw himself as an angel and he actually drew pictures of angels or cut out pictures of angels and had it on the front page of his script to remind himself he wasn't a demon. He was an angel. And stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, well, and we won't get into really- that only because I really, during our verses piece, when we go spoiler heavy, I'm going to argue that that element, because I had never even thought about that, especially, uh, and I, and I'm assuming you both may have, at least heard in the commentary or, or saying one of the behind the scenes things where they discussed the sort of concept of good angel and bad angel. Yes. Which, and, which threw me. Oh, it, it really did. But I'll say right. Me. That right. right there is a key deciding point for me of why this movie works for me so profoundly. Well, I don't want to go there just yet. So, uh, <laughs> so, um, with pet cemetery, do we want to do our ratings reviews or do we want to go a little deeper into it? I want to go deeper into it. I, I still haven't really got into the meat of the, the concept, which okay. I, I want to discuss okay, sure, sure. at least for people who haven't seen it. Um, I, I just kept getting sidetracked. I no, no, no worries. No worries. Fred Gwynn's character, Judd brings the family up to this pet cemetery. He lets them know like, yeah, a lot of animals lives are claimed by this road. This is where the animals are buried. And the family has differing reaction to that based on their beliefs in the afterlife and traumas from their past or whatever. But what we learn is that this is the place where the dead rest. This is a happy place. But beyond this tree fall, this deadfall is the place where the dead walk. And that is someplace we should not go. And I, I was really surprised to, to hear about that, and especially in light of our we had just had this poltergeist Indian burial ground discussion um, the episode before, I did not really realize that this was an Indian burial ground movie. And you have this place where the Micmac Indians uh, had lived there and, but had left because the ground was sour. There was something evil in this place. And as I understand it in the book, it's the Wendigo actually plays a role. And there are many allusions, although not impl- explicit to the Wendigo being in that area. We heard some weird noises and, and they say, what was that? Oh, it's just a loon, you know, and things like that throughout the, the, the story in the remake. We also get some allusions to the Wendigo, but I just think that's fascinating that that's an element of the story and to very light spoilers, because I think most people even just who have ever even heard of this film before, as I had uh, know that the basic premise is there's an area where if you bury something, it comes back to life. 
and the family has this experience with church of the cat where the cat is hit by a car or a truck and they bury it and it comes back to life, but something has changed. And then once they have that experience, once someone has had that experience in their life, there's something very tempting about using that power in other instances when tragedy and death has befallen you. Right. And so that's the, the core idea that I think is so brilliant about this movie and book and remake. And that I think just as a story idea is um, really alluring. And, and King also has mentioned being influenced by the monkey's paw. The idea that you get this wish, but that wish never turns out the way you would hope it would. There's a, there's a, there's a downside to the greed in, in every instance, you know, everything that you want can be granted, but there's definitely going to be a consequence. And I love that idea as well. Monkey's Paul stands as one of the scariest stories I've experienced. And it is because when I was in fifth grade and this is Catholic school, I don't know what the hell they were thinking. They showed us a short film of the Monkey's Paw and everybody in that classroom was terrified when the son was coming back to the house <laughs> and knocking on the door and pounding on the door and and the father scrambling to find the monkey's paw and it was it's it's the middle of the day and we were all petrified and i think we went from there to recess or something that story always sticks with me as just so very scary and that uh that film in fifth grade. I mean, what are you in fifth grade? What was I? 11, 12, something yeah. like that. Showing that to, to a bunch of 12 year olds, uh, might not have been the best move, but it, it is. And it is such a good story too, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, you could definitely see the elements of it in this movie. And that might've been one of the reasons I did connect with it as well. Yeah. I know that, uh, King, I believe himself, Mary Lambert said it as well, that monkey's paw was a big influence on the story. I also was, exposed to that story very early on i was a big fan of reading poe and then a little later on lovecraft and i came across the monkey's paw and i don't remember if it was in an actual school textbook for english class i don't remember if it was there or if it was just something that in school made me aware of it to where i then went and sought it out but i remember reading it and i remember just the story scared the crap out of me just you know and it was one of those stories that it's when it come out like 1910 or something it's a pretty old story it's old yeah but it doesn't read quote unquote old like you know i love poe i love lovecraft but a lot of times you read their stuff and you know you kind of have that the the, almost the real kind of flowery language and the purple it's of their age yeah it's of their time that story felt very modern to me as i recall it's been a while since i've read it i read it a few years back but uh, again because it is one that's fun to revisit even uh, i actually really now want to track down the short film you're talking about dave and then i'd love to see it again yeah. myself i really would maybe i should, show, I, maybe I should show it to my kids because they're about the same age you were so they'll become huge <laughs> horror fans because <laughs> i will traumatize them <laughs> i did like the the various flashback scenes because what i what i thought was really cool was how you know, it's it really is dealing with with children. If you think about it, the pet cemetery was started by children. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot happens to the kids uh, in this movie, um, and even in the flashbacks, you're going back to childhood. Just the mm-hmm. the, the, the theme of childhood uh, running through this movie and the traumas and uh, the things that 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 occur. I really like that they did some of that in flashback because you're seeing 
the characters that are now the adults in that vulnerable state Mm -hmm. and how it's still affecting them, how it still stays with them and, and they can't shake it. And I, again, uh, just watching it again, it, it, it hit me even more. I really liked that part. I really liked how that was incorporated into the story because at first you think, wow, this is going off in so many directions, but it really is all tying back to the same thing. And that's that the, the traumas of childhood. Yeah. I, I really like that, Dave. And I also will say I am a huge fan of the flashbacks because they feel very proper to King because so many of his books, you know, when he flushes out characters, he has these little tributaries that he takes you down where he'll describe, you know, you'll meet this character or the character will be talking and then it'll lead to this little backstory about some character that really has nothing to do with the overall plot of the story at all, but it just helps add that extra richness to not just the story, but just the characters and just everything. And I felt like in this movie, those flashbacks really helped to flesh everything out and really give you this big picture of a, what this burial ground was capable of, right? That you, you know, the consequences of doing it, but Mm -hmm. it just really helped solidify of honestly what makes this movie for so many people an iconic touchstone which let's just say it and i don't think i'm saying anything spoiler by saying this you ask almost anybody who saw this movie as a kid the scariest thing to them and without fail i have yet to meet someone who doesn't say the following name zelda like always (laughs) always and and it's the way and i think it's the presentation of that whole story and the way it plays out and and it's and it's really you know and and obviously we'll get into this later the we do the more versus aspect but the way it's played in this is is very by comparison subdued in my opinion it's just it's disturbing as hell i mean it's just really upsetting and um you know i i think though that those flashbacks really add just a richness to it i have to say though as someone who had had zelda built up my whole life you know and that's the thing that everyone freaks everyone out it was kind of underwhelming <laughs> but see, i think that's the problem right how old were you did you say josh when you first saw this I mean, I remember seeing it in high school a couple times randomly. I don't, I don't have a clear memory of ever sitting down and watching the whole yeah. movie until I just recently watched it. Like I know I've seen it, but I don't. You know, it was not a film that really stuck with me for whatever reason. Well, and until, I think, and I think that's that's the case, right? I think if I had probably not seen this until a little later into my my horror fandom, I would have liked it, as I like most King stuff, even the stuff that a lot of people can't stand. <laughs> so I would have liked it. I don't know if things like that would have affected me as deeply and as profoundly as they did. I think the people that I've typically yeah. talked to about this movie that it's really just haunted them, though, is that imagery of Zelda and, and just that whole subplot. It, mm. it just If you see this movie, I think under a certain age, it just really fixes. I feel like it's a movie that if you see it and you're over a certain age, if you have kids, if you, you know, there's certain in certain other aspects of your life yeah. that could be going on that there's other parts that are way more horrifying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when you're 13, <laughs> that part really, really the, messes the, with you. The fact that a child has been sent in to yes. deal. Yes. With, with this person who and, and in the story, Zelda is very close in age to you know the denise crosby character was at that age like i think it was a 12 year old girl or something yeah so the movie doesn't necessarily convey that well i think it was on purpose though right she said oh it was it was i mean mary limbert made that choice you know on purpose uh to not but you know imagine another child and when you're a kid 
that that's that is is that has gone insane from this condition and and has that look i mean it's 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 really strong and i think i think the zelda is is pretty creepy i do mm-hmm. and and the scenes the scenes with uh her and i'm saying her because of the cast sure part it was, sure. it was a guy um i do i think they i think they work and i I, and I, again, I liked I liked it because of the the whole flashback and the whole you know going back to the childhood of the other characters. And I will add this, Josh. Say what yeah. you will about Zelda being underwhelming. If I put you into a dark back room somewhere and you notice something huddled in the corner and you hear Rachel, I am going to tell you. I bet you back up quick. I bet you back up quick. I'm just going to throw it out there. Well, my, my wife's name is Rachel, too, so I definitely thought about sampling that and using it in the dark of night. Make it your ringtone wow. on your phone? Yeah. Wow. But, you know, I have to say, like, it's kind of, it, it's interesting because I can really imagine what you're saying. I think you're right. I I'm actually would be really curious to hear from our listeners who are maybe the same age I was when they saw it. Like, if there's anybody out here there who's, like, 15 to 20 who sees this what what your thoughts on the film are because i do think this is a film that has the potential to really mess you up when you're a bit like a young kid and has the potential to really mess you up when you're someone who has children as an adult Mm -hmm. but i I am curious about that in between time because that's when i saw it Mm. there are some definite interesting topics to bring up with this film not only like we've mentioned the indian burial ground trope which is somewhat problematic in our current era but also just an interesting thing to bring into a tale like this there is the idea that we have talked about possibly talking about trans representation in horror the idea that they used a male actor to make this more scary that's an interesting idea and i wonder if that would be as well received now and it's just kind of a strange choice i think i also think the choice of just spinal meningitis which is just a horrific thing for someone to have to go through to make that person this kind of creepy demonic character is kind of cruel <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> for anyone who would have had to suffer through this i mean this is a disease that kills infants all the time like it was interesting and kind of shocking to me to see a character who's going through like torture being used in this kind of horrific way you know to to scare the other guy it was interesting i don't know i don't know i don't have necessarily a a strong take on that but i did think it was kind of shocking i guess and i think my take on it is it's the taboo it's the fact that it it does seem wrong i i never felt like it was an exploitation though i didn't feel like i get your point i mean i definitely see where you're coming from with that and of course i'm obviously having no one in my life that's ever experienced that you know maybe somebody who has would feel completely like it was an exploitation but i think from you know king's perspective of creating that story it really is rachel's memory of her sister that as an eight-year-old she perceives her monstrously it's not that necessarily zelda be for you know the real zelda may have been nothing like what she's perceived because memory is that funny fickle thing where we it's it's like a collage of just all these different images and visions that are pieced Mm -hmm. together and so her description of zelda and it's like we're seeing it but it's i feel like i mean and to prove of the dreamlike state of the whole thing and when she go you know i guess this would be kind of spoilery but 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 the uh the way that whole flashback ends with the spectators you know what i'm talking about like it Mm -hmm. has this odd 
disjointed quality to the whole thing. So yeah, yeah. no, I, it's, it's fascinating. Cause I think there are a lot of aspects of this movie that by today's standard, and I have to think even when this came out, that there were some choices that were in bad taste, <laughs> but I, but I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that taboo is interesting and I think it's important. And I think that's an important role that horror plays is dealing with our taboos and even our ugliest fears, not our fears aren't always logical or pretty. Like sometimes we are, mm-hmm. are afraid of people who are different than us. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think those are, those are all interesting things to play with. There's a really, disturbing scene that happens at a funeral in this movie that yes. I think oh, is yeah. such poor taste and is also one of the best scenes yes, in the movie. hundred percent agree with you. The things that affected me more than yes. anything else in the film. I think that is the yeah. most horrifying scene in the movie. Yeah. Yep. And, Emotionally. And it's so as over the top and crazy as it is, it's also so real. Like it's mm-hmm. rooted in the most raw human emotion right. imaginable. It's the hereditary so, moment of the movie. <laughs> yeah and actually hereditary is the film i'm going to bring up uh <laughs> a little bit later when we okay. get into the second film and i think overall in this discussion but yeah all right so do you guys want to go ahead and maybe do our ratings and recommendations yeah let's go for all it. right well i want to go last for the obvious reasons okay. <laughs> yeah i think that's good i'll go first for, okay. for the obvious reason okay i i did enjoy this movie I think, as you mentioned, Joel, this is a world I would like to live in somehow, like as horrific as it all is. There's something about Stephen King um, and the way he paints Maine is, mm-hmm. uh, although everything that happens there seems to be the worst thing imaginable, it still just seems very warm and pleasant and a place you want to be. And, and I don't know how he manages to do that, but <laughs> I, you know, I still want to live in Derry. I still want to live in Ludlow. Mm-hmm. I, it, you know, all of these things, these horrific pictures he paints, maybe it's just the fact that I was raised on murder. She wrote. And so there's always a little Cabot Cove calling to me and yeah, <laughs> a, a town riddled with murder, like yeah. A, t- yeah, yeah. a town, the sleepy little town where someone dies every week. <laughs> right. But um, yeah, I don't know. And so there, there's something very alluring about this film. I think you guys touched on it with the childhood element. It, it's very, King has a way with nostalgia and, and even the things that are horrific, he manages to pull you toward them, make you curious about kind of experiencing it on a deeper level. So I, I I really enjoy the themes of this. I do want to read the book. I will say, and I minor spoiler for the next review too. I feel like there's so much more to be mined from this Mm -hmm. than has been. I think there's so much potential here. Just bringing up hereditary like that example does not help either of these film adaptations (laughs) because there is a a depth of sorrow Mm -hmm. in a film like hereditary that is so real and Mm -hmm. so potent. And I think unmatched by a film like this, you know? And so that's what I want to see because that to me is the, is the logical conclusion to events like Mm -hmm. those that transpire in this film. Mm -hmm. But I love everything about the construction of it. I love the monkey's paw element. I love that there's a place that will grant you your wishes in the worst way imaginable and be used against you. And I think that is just a great horror premise. And so, and I think this is a a very interesting execution of it. And I love that the Ramones are in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that and that they wrote a song <laughs> called Pet Cemetery based on the film. <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I give this one a 7.5 out of 10, and I think it's a buy it. I think it's one that um, 
that I own and that I would consider buying the higher quality Blu-ray that you guys have, mm-hmm. um, even having having it on DVD already. But I think it's definitely a, a must-watch for horror fans. Everybody should see it at least once. Dave, yeah, I'm um, I'm going to come in actually at an eight point five. Um, I, I've touched on a lot of what I really do like about the movie. Uh, it does go in a lot of directions. And maybe before I watched it today with the commentary, I might have been around 7.5 or 8. But the commentary did give me a new understanding. And we'll get into that later when um, we get into the Collector's Crypt segment. But all of it really worked even more for me now than it has before. Fred Gwynn is great. Miko Hughes is great. And just that whole that whole sense of, of childhood that you get from the movie of the, the traumas of childhood. So yeah, I'm saying 8.5. I definitely recommend the new Blu-ray that came out. Uh, well worth picking up. Excellent. And for me, you will both be shocked to learn that it, for me is a 9.5. Now I, Tell me why I say, well, why isn't it a 10? It's in your top 10. Well, because it's funny. There are probably movies that I would argue are tens that aren't necessarily in my top 10. I know that sounds weird. Like I would consider The Exorcist a ten. It's not technically in my top ten, at least not right now. I hear that. You, I, you know absolutely. what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. So, so I, I just it's but and I love The Exorcist, and I'll rewatch The Exorcist. But this is just a movie that I enjoy revisiting for some macabre reason, and it affects me so emotionally, especially two key scenes of every freaking time get me i every time it's like i know they're there i know they're coming i know beat for beat everything that happens and yet every time this movie affects me emotionally i and i and i feel like i have to shave off the half a point because if i go 10 it's just pure nostalgia talking and i've got to be you know honest i mean i know it's not a perfect movie by any stretch but it it so effectively gets me every time and and to your point josh i totally get what you're saying about the hereditary idea I guess the only thing I say with that is as much as I loved Hereditary and Hereditary is like a 10 to me. I've heard it. There's a brilliant, brilliant movie, <laughs> but I don't know that I ever, I mean, I'll probably see it at least once more in my life, <laughs> but it's such a hard thing to get through sometimes that yeah. if Pet Cemetery had that vibe, I don't know that it would be in my top 10 because for me, top 10 is also about rewatchability. It's about I how it made me, that. you know what I'm saying? So, and I'm not arguing for that, but I'm just saying like, even if the overall tone isn't the same as hereditary, which I'm not, I, you know, I, I love the tone of both pet cemetery films, but I think just having an actor or a scene or two that can get to those same depths of despair. I think that is crucial for making a film like this. Work. Yes. Like yeah. you need a, you need a Tony Collette level performance. Yeah. To, to drive it home. And I don't disagree with you. In fact, now that we have a world where you've got these two interpretations of Pet Cemetery, I wouldn't, I mean, I've got this one. I could always revisit it, right? So have that third one that really goes there. I, I completely agree with you. And, right. I, I, you know, I, but for me, it's a 9.5. I say we, you absolutely should own it. Get the collector's edition. You should watch it. Uh, multiple times with with your children preferably just so they're traumatized like you know i was um and and uh, you know it's it's the kind of movie that a i i feel like will always go down for me as being so important because it showed us what fred gwynn is capable of as you said earlier dave i feel like it's an example of that completely contradicts any idiot that wants to say well you know i don't know can women do horror as well yeah yeah they can Okay, and the fact that Mary Lambert <laughs> only got to really do what Pet Cemetery two, 
as far as any other real horror, and I and I and I will admit this, uh, it is a sentimental favorite. By the way, I am going to institute that as my replacement for guilty pleasure because I hate that phrase. Sentimental favorite. I like Pet Cemetery too. Um, there but, you go. But I feel I find it to be a freaking shame. How do you make a movie that's this successful financially, you know, let alone, and not go on to be like the Catherine Bigelow of horror? You know what I'm saying? Like I don't get that. <laughs> I don't yeah. get. I don't get it. But probably the same reason Catherine Bigelow wasn't able to. <laughs> Oh, well, I guess good point. <laughs> That's actually yeah, really, really good right. point. Is it near dark, anyone? Uh, well, I guess technically near dark, though, didn't do as well as this one did. Um, but I love it. I think it's a great movie. I definitely say you should own it. Awesome, dude. All right, that was our review for Pet Cemetery 1989. And now let's go to our collector's crypt. So you guys are going to talk about the new release of the Pet Cemetery Blu-ray 4K thing that just came out and that's awesome and I'm going to sit back and listen with the listeners about how cool that is. I just wanted to bring up one other DVD that's available for this film before we get into that, which is the way that I watched it. Um I imagine if you're a fan of the film, you're going to want to get the version that you guys have as someone who was kind of more of a casual watcher and wasn't necessarily a fan coming in to watching it. This was a good package. It's a four disc collection. It's out currently DVD uh, for the dead zone, pet cemetery, silver bullet and graveyard shift. The nice little package of films that maybe otherwise I wouldn't have bought independently. And so I was hmm. glad to buy all these in there for a very inexpensive price. I think it was only like, it was definitely less than $15 for all four. Um, I, it might've even been less, it might've been like one of those $8 buys, but wow. um, the pet cemetery and the dead zone are both the special collector's editions. So they have special features and a commentary and the pet cemetery one's interesting because all the special features are from the era. They're like the original, uh, special features and so it's like r- looks really terrible shot on video but it's got interviews with Stephen King and that's fun but it's also got a commentary by Mary Lambert I don't know I didn't wasn't able to watch that so I don't know if it's the same one that that you guys got but this is a decent little package for someone who's not a super fan of the film and and maybe you want to check it out maybe your interest was piqued by reviews but you're not sure if you want to go whole hog, this will give you, uh, you know, you can watch Silver Bullet and Dead Zone and Graveyard Shift as well for probably around the same price. So that's my collector's crypt plug. Oh, I think it's a great plug. And honestly, I'm glad they at least included the special features with two of them. And did Dead Zone have Cronenberg commentary on it? Let's see. Dead Zone, which I have not watched yet. Oh, you've never seen Dead Zone? Uh-uh. Oh, man. I can't wait to hear you hear what you think That'll of that one. It, yeah. I like Dead Zone. De- Dead Zone has one, two, three, four special feature documentaries, I guess, featurettes, no commentary. Ah, boo. Oh, boy. <laughs> we gotta, we'll, have to do, we'll have to do a Cronenberg episode. Oh, absolutely, point. man. That'd be great. Long overdue, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, it's funny, though. You, you said, you know, those. You're, it's a fair 
thing to say, you know, get all those four movies together, but all four of those I would love to get special editions of <laughs> with commentary, right. the works, everything. Yeah. Probably not going to happen for Graveyard Shift. All right. Well, that is a good collection that everyone should go pick up unless you want to go buy all four movies individually like I probably will. So, Dave, do you want to <laughs> yeah. maybe kick us off with the, the the sort of featured collector's crypt review? Sure. I mean, um, I, I did get a chance to watch the movie. I got a chance to watch the movie with commentary. Uh, and check out all the special features, with the exception of the photo gallery. I got to admit, I didn't check out the photo gallery. That's usually the one (laughs) special feature. I I said, okay, there's a photo gallery, yay. Um, And that's that's probably not right, because probably some of the photos are pretty cool. But what's interesting, though, is the movie looks great, and Mary Lambert did supervise the 4K restoration it looks incredible. It really does. It looks it looks crisp. The scenes in in the woods, and especially the scenes out at the uh, Indian burial ground, are amazing. Uh, you know the long shots there. Uh, that shot in the in the field uh, with the kite is amazing. It really really looks crisp and beautiful. And Mary Lambert even said um, in one of the special features that they were able to improve things from the movie. She goes, "You can't add things. You can't change shots." But you can do things digitally to make it look better than it's ever looked from the time, you know, that from its first time the negative ran through, it looks better. And that's, I think, one of the main reason to pick this up. The older special features, I think, are still the better special features. Mm-hmm. We get the one, uh, I can't remember what it's called. I'm trying to find a list now. I've got it in front of me. Let me tell you, we've got Fear and Remembrance, Revisitation, New Interview with Mary Lambert. And then you got the three new behind the scenes image galleries and... A couple of the special features. Right. That's interesting because that's none of those are the same as the ones that are on the DVD I have. Well, no, there are others. Those are the newer ones, I think. Yeah, those are the new ones. The, the original ones, I think, as Stephen King territory, the characters and filming the horror. Oh, yeah. Are those, yeah, those the, are the yeah, three that I okay. have. Yeah. yeah. Not only are they, they better, they're longer. They're like between 10 and 13 minutes. The other ones are like between seven and eight minutes yeah. or something like that. The first one, Fear and Remembrance... They talk to the cast of the new Pet Cemetery about the old Pet Cemetery. It really feels like a commercial for the new Pet Cemetery. And that's, you know, one of the things that's that's really cool is that when they do come out with a remake, we get a nice, pristine, brand new release of the original mm-hmm. film. One yeah. of the really cool advertising avenues that they use to promote a sequel is yeah. to come out with the original like this. And that's awesome. I hope yeah. they keep doing that. Yeah. I really mm-hmm. We the do. fans that's, benefit. That's yeah. Absolutely. And we got a really great looking movie here out of it. And that's awesome. But that did really play like a commercial of the first one. Uh, the second one I thought was a little bit better because um, I think they talked to Mary Lambert in that. Yes. One, yes. Like now. And that one was the better of the two because she does go into looking back as far back as she is now. Now, I do know that the commentary is from the original release because okay. she talks about how Miko Hughes is now 18 or 19. <laughs> yeah. uh, whereas right now he's over 30. Yeah. Uh, I was like, Oh, either she can't gauge time or <laughs> this is a very old commentary. <laughs> um, but the original ones and you're right, Josh, they look rough. They're on video, but you got Stephen King in there. You got Fred Gwynn in yeah. there. You've got all of the original cast talking about the movie, the director it's really, really awesome. She even talks about how they had twins playing the the older girl, like the, the older daughter. But yet there was one of them who built the character. 
And the other one came in and was real good in the action scenes, apparently. But one of them, and, and that's what Mary Lambert said, is we want to get twins. One of them always stands out as the one who's really building the character. And then the other one just sort of fills in for the time that's needed, um, you know, and is, and is serviceable, uh, which I think she said the other sister was. But for me, the older ones are still better, but it's the movie. It's the look of the movie that makes this Blu-ray worth picking up. Very interesting. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, Dave. 100%. Honestly, you sold me when you were talking about how the picture looks better than it ever has. I was like, mm, I oh, guess yeah. I'll get this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, what I'm looking forward to is because uh, it was funny because Dave and I went back and forth because you when you picked it up a few, what was it, about a week or so ago, Dave? And you were, you had said in the text about how you'd gotten yeah. it for $12.95. I'm like, what? What? I paid like 20 bucks at Best Buy. I got it for twelve ninety. I got it online. I, I did the pre-order, you know, because I'm a dork and I pre-ordered it. Well, you know, I knew it was coming out and it was like, you know, 20 bucks basically. And I'm like, oh, and it's because I got the 4K Ultra HD plus Blu-ray. Right. Plus I just yeah. got the Blu-ray. Yeah. And I, I, did, I was like, Blu-ray. OK, well, that at least makes me feel a little better. Now, I don't yet have a 4K <laughs> TV, but that is on the laundry list of many things that I do want, because I imagine this thing on that will look in because I think that it has the uh, high dynamic range. I think it'll look amazing. Well, how it looks on blue is amazing. It'll look really amazing on that. I just barely started buying 4Ks. I've only bought like two of them. And I know a lot of collectors have been buying them for a while. But for me, it, it was kind of the same way I got into Blu-ray. It was kind of like, well, now that they offer, the, you know, back then it was now that they offer the Blu-ray and the DVD in the same package, I'll start buying Blu-rays because I'll, I'll keep watching my DVDs until I get a Blu-ray player. That's kind of how I am with the 4Ks now. I'm like, well, okay, I'll buy it since it comes with the Blu-ray then I'll, I'll buy the 4k. And then what if I eventually want 4k, I'll have it. It's exactly what I'm doing. Exactly. Does anybody ever use the digital movie that's included with these things, by the way? Cause I never do. Um, a lot of people do. Yeah. Because, do but th- that's funny. I think the people who would appreciate the digital downloads are not necessarily the people who would buy the Blu-ray. So that's um, a good point. I always pull those things out of the, out of it and just throw them away. I was like, oh, this damn thing again. And I just throw it away. Well, we should give them away to our listeners. I know that yeah, they're we listening. Oh, good point. Going forward. If, if they have one for, uh, for us in that release, I'll save mine and we can, I have my pet cemetery. I still have it. I, I, I will be happy to, we could do a giveaway for that. That'd be fantastic. Oh, well, there you go. There well, you go. We'll do what Dave did with his DVDs and we'll just get a folder full of like 300 digital downloads. Yeah, that'd and be give great. Them away. That'd be fantastic. There you go. Yeah, I will agree with you, Dave, though. I loved all the extras uh, that other than the fear and remembrance, one, which was fine. I mean, it, it was what it was, but it it was uh, it very much felt like a promotional piece. Uh, and I mean, which all of it is right. I mean, a lot of the featurettes are all promotional, trying right. to gin up right. interest. But you're, you're right. It was definitely promotional for the new movie. Uh, but the uh, the other ones, I, I like that sort of lower rent <laughs> quality to those things. It was neat. I actually did go through all the galleries. Both the did you do the storyboard gallery, Dave? I did. I did not do. I didn't do the gallery. So it, I gotta be that was pretty cool because they actually just show you the sequence. Let's just say it involves a kite, a kid, and a truck. And <laughs> <laughs> well done, Joel. Yeah, thank you. Was that subtle? I don't think you spoiled a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. So the kid's driving this truck <laughs> while flying a kite out the window. It's beautiful. Right. Flying a kite out the window. Beautiful. And it's such a cute kite too. You feel so bad. For <laughs> You really do. You really do. So it's it's that sequence. And it was interesting to see how closely it fit what they ended up with. But there was just a few things that were different. And you could almost see in the storyboard why 
Lambert chose maybe the choice she made of, of removing a certain shot. It was just cool. It was neat to see that. And then the actual behind the scenes still gallery was pretty cool because there was a lot of images of King on set and everybody kind of goofing off. And it was just kind of nice, you know, because considering the overall tone of the movie, you know, to see this sort of what was obviously people having a very good time. Uh, right. making it so yeah i i highly recommend this uh, i mean any movie that's going to come out uh, on, co- on a collector's edition like this if it's one you love you're going to want to pick it up but uh, but this one especially I, I guess if i had any if i'm going to be like let's start picking at nits here i would have liked maybe an updated commentary with other people involved you know maybe mm-hmm. get del but maybe get del make maybe get miko hughes and maybe i don't know miko hughes if, yeah would he remember anything that's that's a- <laughs> probably not but you know or get the actress like i can't remember the twins blaze and i don't remember the last name was i think the one that to your point that typically did the more dramatic scenes so hey get her back you know get denise crosby get dale midkiff that would have been fan with uh mary lambert i i like that when you have that dynamic of everybody together even that, yes. that's the ideal but i mean that that said, Mary Lambert's commentary, even uh, even if it's older, is really strong. Yeah, it's really good. Especially I she's it was by herself. Really, really I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's yeah. a load to carry when you're by yourself. And it is. Yeah. And she's quiet at the right moments. Yes. And she's talking through most of it, but she do- is quiet right at the right moment. Oh, she really is. It's great. Well, I'll tell you guys what. Since you mentioned that, I wasn't planning on doing this because it wasn't worth a full screaming online segment. And actually, I guess there is a Blu-ray of this that exists, but the documentary I've mentioned a couple of times, unearthed and untold mm-hmm. the path to pet cemetery. Um, there is a blu-ray you can get from synapse films, which is a great indie horror DVD distributor that I think we should all support. Oh yeah. They're awesome. It's also available um, if, with a subscription for free on Amazon prime and shutter. So this is very available right now to watch. You can also get it for like a two ninety nine rental on YouTube and prime and Google play and all those places as well. So, it's definitely worth watching if you are a Pet Cemetery super fan like Joel. This has interviews with Miko Hughes. This has interviews with the entire cast, including the, the twins as adults. And it's an interesting take on a behind-the-scenes documentary. And in that way, maybe something I wouldn't recommend to people who are not super fans because mm-hmm. it's kind of told from the perspective of the local main day players, which I think is a really interesting approach, which I had never really seen before. They get like the person who did craft services and the person who was the a driver on the movie and all the set builders and props builders and all the locals who were involved in it, extras, people who were extras in the film. And they interview them about the time Hollywood came to town. And it's a really fun kind of take on a behind the scenes documentary that I haven't really seen before. and was kind of inspirational actually. That's awesome. Ways that we can talk about and maybe a later date. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, I think if, if I was a super fan of pet cemetery, if you want to see interviews with all those folks that you guys were saying, kind of lamenting weren't in the commentary, it's still not the same as having them all there together in a commentary. There is something kind of magical about that setting. But you can get a lot more insight into the making of the film and hear from basically every single person who was involved Mm -hmm. in making it from top to the bottom. Uh, Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I I would recommend that. It's a very low priority rental for me personally. Um, But if you're a super fan, it's a must see. And I I would even think you maybe couldn't go wrong buying it. But if you're like Joel, but um, it would make a nice companion piece to your pet cemetery blu-ray do you happen to know if the blu-ray of it has anything additional or is it just the documentary 
Um, let me look it up really quick. Okay. Oh, well, while you're doing that, I will say I didn't get to revisit it before we recorded this and full disclosure it's because i just it's for some reason it slipped my mind i mean i know we've actually talked about it not that long ago but it just you know preparing for this is like it goes like you know there is a documentary out there about this movie you probably should rewatch. and i saw it several months back i could have i don't know if it was a year ago but it feels like it was quite a long time ago because as you were saying that thing about miko and the twins i remember them in it now that you say it but if you asked uh-huh. me who was in it i would not have been able to say so i know i need to revisit it i, I definitely yeah. want to rewatch it and you know i wouldn't mind picking up the blu-ray especially if there are some extras and i, I have gotten some documentary uh blu-rays and dvds where they will put extra pieces on them so i, I just wasn't sure if they okay did. so yes the blu-ray is different from the digital download the digital download is just the documentary okay the blu-ray has reversible cover art which everyone likes it's got two audio commentaries nice from the makers of the documentary okay about their documentary it's got alternate scenes and edited scenes so extended interviews basically of a lot of the people involved in it it's got a featurette about making the documentary there's a lot of stuff on here um that's what i was hoping you'd say (laughs) yeah there's a lot of extra features on the synapse blu-ray i am ordering it as we speak yeah okay and i think it's a little bit cheaper on amazon than it is if you buy it directly from synapse like five bucks cheaper i think on amazon so so for feeling cheap (laughs) that's cool yeah i'm I'm ordering it that's excellent thank you i was hoping you would say all that because you know sometimes i realize with a documentary the the tendency is hey it's a documentary just you know put it on there but every once in a while and even commentary from the filmmakers behind that because you know they're going to probably have some cool stories about right. me when they interviewed so and so and so yeah no that's true yeah and as a documentary filmmaker who's had special features on my disc i get that i, I just i thought maybe this would be different because it's about a different movie <laughs> if that makes sense oh, you sure. know what i mean no, like, that makes perfect sense yeah but but no there's there is a lot so it's funny looking through this list of features i think it has more than the collector's <laughs> edition that we're doing for the collector's script <laughs> that's hilarious well, and it's a 97 minute behind the scenes documentary, so it really should fill your. Yeah. Um, which is the That's reason awesome. I thought, you know, I've already seen this and I own the movie. I probably won't buy the new Blu ray, but what you guys are saying about the 4K restoration, it does really look great. It does look really good. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It's worth it. I think it's totally worth it for that. Yeah, that Blu ray is 18 bucks on Amazon as opposed to 25 on directly from Synapse. Oh, there you go. So definitely the Pet Cemetery fans, pick that up. Pick up the collector's edition. Pick it all up. All right, so that wraps up our collector's crypt. We hope you enjoyed that. And uh, we will now go into our feature review of Pet Cemetery 2019. So many trees. It's beautiful, right? It's definitely not Boston. Here we go. Okay, so what do you think? Wow, this whole place is ours? I even got him to throw in a whole forest as a new backyard. It was a myth. Kids used to dare each other to go into the woods at night. power of that place. They feared it. Those woods belong to something else.
ground is bad. Maybe just some crazy folk tale. But there is something up in those woods. There's something that brings things back. Sometimes dead is better. Okay, so just wanted to remind our listeners who may or may not remember our longer Stephen King coverage that I've already kind of touched on. We're talking about probably six hours of Stephen King content (laughs) there between those two episodes, maybe more. Um, We covered all of his films. Part one was 1976 through 1996. Part two was 1997 through 2017. And that was right up to the release of The Dark Tower at the time. We do have more Stephen King episodes that have covered his films since then, like our Creepy Clowns versus episode that was It 1990 versus It 2017, which we're kind of echoing, I guess, with today's episode, as well as our two Winter with Stephen King episodes, which we covered films like The Shining and Misery and Storm of the Century and Dreamcatcher. Uh, lots of great Stephen King coverage there for folks. But for people who don't maybe remember those original episodes with Joel, I did want to remind people before we get into this review about Joel's review of the mist. (laughs) (laughs) Because Uh, I have a feeling that might come into play later uh, as we get into this film. Josh knows me far, far too well. (laughs) Well played, sir. It's interesting. And and I know without spoiling my review, I will say one of my biggest issues with this movie is anything, but not not in the same way as the mist believe it or not that's actually okay. not not the, i know where you're going with that but 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 no not actually not at all uh, that, uh, okay but, but i still kind of hate the ending of this movie but not <laughs> and and it's funny not necessarily the part that would make you think because it is the most like the mist <laughs> that yeah. part actually didn't even bother me that much uh oh, but interesting yeah interesting. but but yeah no this will be fun okay all right let's get let's get into it so Pet Cemetery is a 2019 film. It is directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer. It is written uh, from the novel by Stephen King with a screen story by friend of the show, Matt Greenberg, and a screenplay by Jeff Bueller. Now, Jeff Bueller is the screenwriter of films like Midnight Meat Train and the remake of The Grudge and the recent film The Prodigy. And of course, our friend Matt Greenberg wrote up until it chapter one, the most successful ever Stephen King adaptation, 1408 in terms of financials. And he was also a screenwriter for Halloween H2O. And if you ever saw the dragon action film, reign of fire, which is a really fun original story from Matt Greenberg. Love that movie. It's a great movie. And that has actually written four Stephen King adaptations at this point. So we are doing the interview with him coming up so i'm not sure what his take is on any of this but i'll have to ask him interesting yeah the premise for this film is much the same as the original dr lewis creed and his wife rachel relocate from boston in this case i guess rather than chicago to rural maine with their two children the couple soon discover a mysterious burial ground hidden deep in the woods near their new home i was so excited about the adaptation of this film despite not having been a huge fan of the original, maybe because I wasn't a huge fan of the original, 
I am, I am a big Stephen King fan and I love the premise of this film. And I thought, um, what a great cast to bring it to life. Jason Clark for me, he's better than a lot of the movies he's been in, but there was a time in 2012 when he had two films back to back that were like two of my favorite films I'd ever seen. And he is so incredible in both of them lawless and zero dark 30 to see him in both of those films the same year. I was like, this guy is my favorite actor. Who is this guy? I totally thought one of them was going to be Terminator Genesis, (laughs) but then I realized 2012, that was not the right year. (laughs) Yeah. I just think Jason Clark is supremely talented. And again, with hereditary in mind coming into this film, I thought Jason Clark is an actor who can get to the depths, the horrors of a film like this. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Simons is another actress who I'm a huge fan of. She's kind of an indie darling. She's been in a few bigger films, but that's not really like the reason to know her. The reason to know her is like watch her smaller indie stuff. It's incredible. Um, John Lithgow, of course, is incomparable. And so I just thought, what a great cast to bring this alive. Then we saw the first trailer and John Lithgow wasn't doing the accent and I started getting worried. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's superficial, but I had the exact same reaction. It's a, I had the exact same reaction. I did, by the way, did not watch the further trailers. I just saw the very first tease and everyone said, do not watch the trailers for this film. Mm-hmm. It was all over the internet. Do not watch these trailers. They spoil what will be a major twist in the movie. So I stayed away from it and I warned our audience to stay away from it. But did you guys, you said, Joel, you saw the trailer for this? Unfortunately, yes, because like you, I was trying not to, and I learned my lesson. I will now pull a Josh from here on out. I was sitting in us, and the trailer came up. Every second there, I was like, oh, okay, it's going to, it's Pet I could tell by the vibe at the very beginning. I was like, Pet Cemetery. But then it hit me like, wait a minute, this looks a little different than the trailer I remember watching. And it, it, occurred to me that the way it was playing out, it must be the second trailer that everyone had also informed me spoiled the movie. So I was trying to avoid that. I should have gotten up and left because straight up it does. You know, I don't know what the thought process is. I know we, this is something we go into over and over again and have a, probably a three hour long discussion about trailers and why they just, I love trailers. I love to watch trailers. I love to seek them out. But at this point, I feel like I got to wait till after I've seen the movie, then go watch the trailer because they ruin it. They, they ruin so much with that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really stupid. It really is. Had you seen the trailer for this one, Dave? Again, uh, like, like Joe, it was during a screening of us. And it came on and you're not, I'm not sure. Is it, is it the new one? And then I see it is, I'm like, okay, well, I got a choice. I can either stand up and turn around. I can shut my eyes or I just said, no, I'll, I'll sit here and, and yeah, I saw it and it was awful and it was ridiculous. It makes no sense that they would put a trailer like that out, you know, unless they're thinking their thought process is, oh, it's a remake. People know what's going to happen, but no, we don't because you changed something. Well, can I make a, yeah. I want to interject something real quick that I probably should have mentioned during our other review. I actually don't consider this a remake. Can I say that up front? And I've, deti- I've determined for me, I, I realize maybe I'm being overly picky about this, but I feel like it is a true reimagining of an a, a, a adapting source material. Hmm. So in the same way, if they come out with a new version of Romeo and Juliet, I'll go, hey, they're remaking that movie with Olivia Hussey. I don't do that, right? Because it's Romeo and Juliet. They're just true, do an true. interpretation of it. So I feel right. like when you have source material, especially really strong, well-known source material like the book, Pet Cemetery, or the book It, or any of these things, they don't, for me, have to hit a, the same 
level of what my expectations are when it comes to say a remake so like halloween for instance the source material is the movie itself nothing else exists other than that movie therefore everything i'm going to see in a quote-unquote remake i'm going to only be able to compare to that original movie whereas especially if you've read Mm -hmm. the source material you've been exposed to it you could go back to that and say you know cool i can see how they chose to do this and that so honestly and i'm sure the spoiler part will get into a lot more some of the key changes they made in this i actually liked (laughs) i actually really liked those that's not why i'm probably going to give this a far lower rating than i wanted to spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) it seems like this movie harkens to again having not read the book but knowing some about it in terms of comparison to the original film in the book things that this movie does that the original film didn't do but that came from the novel yes and then also a lot of imagery and ideas that seem to be unique to the mary lambert film so I feel like it's got both. Yes, it does. And in that way, it was working for me. I, but I think where I start to fall apart on it is that there were the, the things that they didn't include that mm. they didn't pull as their inspiration from the original, even the move, just the, going with the movie as our source material in this case, like which obviously we got the book. But the things that they didn't pull from the movie that I was really missing and both there's a couple that are a little more uh, superficial aesthetic type things they are not necessarily like, OK, if, if they hadn't been there and, and there's other these other parts had been there, I would have been OK with it. But there were just a couple of key elements relating to character relationships, relating to whose story this really is that right. I, I just was like, dude, it doesn't it's not working for me. And what sucks is I was trying to like let all that go throughout Two thirds of this movie, or maybe even more than that. Like, I mean, up until like the last 15 minutes. And then, and I was like, what the hell is going on? I think, I also think there, yeah, it was, you've kind of alluded to, there are also completely original ideas here that don't, aren't in the book or the movie. At all. And I'm curious about those choices, which we can ask the writer about, uh, you know, as much as he was involved with those choices. Sure. I think, um, I think some of them are brilliant for a remake. You know, because I think the first movie worked so well in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And then I think you have an opportunity to do a remake. And we saw this a lot with like the Platinum Dunes era remakes where they're kind of like, okay, we love the essence of these films. We're only going to make one Friday the 13th movie or one Nightmare on Elm Street movie. How do we bring in the mythology from some of the other sequels or whatever that worked? We kind of like put our own twist on it. And it's like they, you know, with those films, they had multiple to draw from. And I guess in this case, you have the book and the movie to draw from. Um, we have the things like the condensing of of Jason's mom's story in Friday the 13th or the bringing in of the par- angry parents in A Nightmare on Elm Street that happened in later installments of those films. I thought that those were really harshly received by fans of those movies and I think that although those movies had a lot of things I hated about them, mostly just like the <clears throat> super unlikable teen casts, but I think they also, I feel like we were a little bit too harsh on them in retrospect. Like those were pretty loving adaptations actually more than they got credit for, I think. And I kind of feel similarly about this. Like, I feel like they're trying to both pay homage to, the film and the book, but also bring a unique twist to it. And I think when you do a remake like this, in the era that we're in, it kind of seems like you kind of almost have to, because what's the point of remaking a classic if you're not going to put your own twist on it? And so I think you have to think about, okay, what things can we change 
in this case, it's one of their changes, one of their major changes that I think is the thing that was probably spoiled in the trailer. Yep. I'm not having seen the trailer. Added helped a lot for me of things it did. things I didn't like about the original film. Yep. Like things I thought uh, doesn't quite work. This made it work better for me. I also really liked the addition of just more information about the cemetery and the children that buried things there. I wish I wanted even more of that. I wanted like four times the amount of that. I really liked what they added to Judd's character's backstory. That's not in the book or the movie. I thought that when I saw the first film, I thought, well, this they I feel like they're missing a major idea here that would add so much to the story and it was completely left out of the movie and i thought well i wonder that has to be in the book and then from the little research i was able to do it seems like it wasn't in the book well that's interesting so I, I was, I, when we get to the spoiler i'm curious to know what that is if it's what i think it is it is in the book so oh it is in the book i okay. think is is it well we'll talk about it we'll then, get there we'll get there <laughs> anyway so there were a lot of things i liked here there were and and i think like with those platinum dooms remakes it's really a weird experience because you have on every measurable level, as I've always said, when we've talked about those films, it's better. Like the cinematography is better. The sounds better. The actors are all way better. Like other than again, um, you know, Judd is definitely arguable, but I still think John Lithgow is probably an actor that has more capability, even though I don't like his performance as much mm -hmm. as Judd mm -hmm. by every like technical metric on paper, this should be the better movie but it's missing some amount of heart yes. that the original film had. And for a lot of people, I think that will probably be enough to make it a far worse movie. Yes. You hit it, dude. Yeah. That's that you, yeah, I don't even need to say anything. <laughs> like honestly, <laughs> and, and, and I need to say this, my wife is a massive fan of the original as well. And she was may as excited, if not more so to see this movie. And okay. she, and she is definitely not close to as just ridiculously nitpicky as I could be when it comes to certain things. Like first it's the mist. She's like, okay. Like she doesn't, she does not get the geek rage that I go into. You know, she actually has a life <laughs> and, and, and some sense to her, but I'm just saying that for me, I get crazy. <laughs> like I, after we saw this, I kept going on about this. this and she's like, uh-huh. And she goes, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I didn't really enjoy it as much as I was hoping to. <laughs> It was, but but it's like even <laughs> but even her as somebody who enjoys loves the original was really looking forward to it. She enjoyed it, and actually, I think to your point, really felt like it was a really well made movie. Like I don't think anybody would yeah. argue that point. Although I will say, one of the things about this movie that and and I guess it's just indicative of the time we live in as far as how a lot of horror movies look and feel. Although I felt like Us did this pretty good. Was the horror in the daylight? There's a yeah. lot more horror in the daylight in the original that for mm -hmm. me makes it really accentuates certain moments because you've got that contrast of the beauty and the just the clear sky with this horrific event whereas so much in the new one it almost felt like at times they were you know filming it in you know the northwest part of the country like it was just very dreary and and wet and you know what i mean it was well not it was pretty bold and kind of lame that they didn't film this in Maine after all of the effort that went to filming the original film in Maine for them to then go to Canada to film this one. That's kind of stupid. Yeah. Oh, and it, <laughs> like it, it, you of, felt it though, right? Something was missing. And I feel like that was a piece that was missing. Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say, I felt like they captured a lot of what worked about that original location. And I felt like the, tr the, especially the truck stuff was really strong. Yes. Like, if I'm if I'm a first time viewer of this story and I'm just comparing the two scene by scene, I'm like, whoa, 
this street feels so dangerous. Yes, it does. It feels way more dangerous. I agree with that. But without, again, we'll go into the spoiler, but that sort of pivotal moment, I don't, yeah. I did not feel this have the, vis- I, it affected me, but it was not as visceral. It just didn't have the same level. It has a level of remove, like you're almost watching it. And part of it is the, the camera shots that they chose just to make it feel more, I guess, less exploitative, I think is probably what they were going for. But, um, and it was cool and kind of action movie, I guess, but yeah, it, it didn't have quite the same heart, but it still felt, I still feel like if you had given those actors and I, and I want to now speak to this, I don't think Jason Clark reached the, the depths I expected from him. And I think it's because there just isn't a scene where he sits and feels his feelings yeah. like with Tony Collette and hereditary. There are multiple scenes where we just see her in it mm-hmm. and you don't really get that. And even in the original pet cemetery, there are some scenes where you see him, you know, uh, Lewis Lewis in it. Yeah. But you don't really give Jason Clark Nothing, yeah. many of those moments. I felt you know? like he was, I felt like he had a very realistic re- reaction to a parent yeah. that's grieving in that he was very emotionally disconnected and yeah. uh, removed. You know, it's always like a way to protect, like a self-protection. But the problem is, to, you know, to your point about something being exploitative, it's a movie and I want to feel emotion. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I get that in real life because I think of Tony Collette's performance in Hereditary. And I know people are thinking, don't keep comparing it. But I think when you think about her performance so easily and you could even label it over the top, but it's so affecting. It's so, so real. real and raw. And it's almost like I come back to that one moment in the original when a, when a character has a very similar reaction and you mm-hmm. feel it. You feel that just unbelievable just anguish and yeah. suffering and heartache. And I well, never got it from this movie. See, and the, for me, that scene didn't work for me in the original as well as it worked for you. But the scene for me in this that was missing was the aforementioned yeah. in bad taste funeral yes, scene. Yes, absolutely. I don't care if they even did that scene because it is in pretty poor taste, <laughs> even though I loved it. I But you need a scene that gets to that raw nerve yep. of humanity. Yes. Of, you know, you yes. need that caveman yes. just yes. moment. Yes. You know, and that's what I feel like this movie, honestly, like that was my biggest complaint is just not having that because I, I just, I felt like this movie was primed to have all of the things that the original lacked, I guess, for me. I agree with you a thousand percent. I will also say that my other biggest quibbles with it were yeah. less Lithgow's accent. And I think Lithgow's a fantastic actor. He's he's honestly an amazing actor. But wouldn't you have liked the accent, though? I would have obvious. loved the accent because I go back to it doesn't only not only does it not really feel like they shot it in Maine because they didn't, but that nobody else in the movie. It wasn't just Judd that has the accent. Missy, who is not even in this version of it the the woman is helping like house cleaning for the creeds uh early uh-huh. on as a little subplot her character in the original was very you know yeah i, I mean they, she has that whole thing going on too so you get that that flavor of the place and this one mm-hmm. nobody's like that i mean there's there, it's like there's no sense of anybody being true natives people who are from this world i never got right. that and this is the part though where i really lose it for this movie especially and I, i'll tell you what i made the best choice i've ever made i was gonna watch the original the night before we went the next day to go see the new one i am Uh so glad i didn't because here's the difference (laughs) one version one way of me doing this is i i see the original and then i go watch the new one and i come out pissed right and the other version (laughs) is which is what i did thank god i came out kind of (laughs) disappointed 
<laughs> not hating, not not just ha- not hating necessarily. Just yeah, you know, come on, uh, something's missing, something's missing. And then I go revisit the original. And then to Dave's point earlier, I go and I listen to the commentary, and that reinforces to me. It's like yes, that's what was missing. And we'll nice. get into this in our versus piece of this. But the fact of the matter is, the dynamic between Judd and Lewis is completely and utterly missing for me in this movie. All the seeds that you needed from the original, if you're going to use the original as any kind of template at all, Lewis is by himself. Several key moments in the original, and that's when certain things Mm -hmm. happen that you don't get it from this movie. You only get one time with that because that's how he's able to do the one thing he's able to do. But you never get that where he's like there's something of him being detached from his family in that original movie being alone. And it's Lewis's story. Go back to that book. It's Lewis's book. It's Lewis's story. Now, I honestly would have been okay for the remake. Make it Rachel's story. Make her the main character. But then again, if you are, then you're going to have to change the whole dynamic of who's making these choices that are leading to these really bad outcomes so that you have right. the, the, the real sense of uh, uh, an ending that gives you that satisfaction. I mean, you think about the original movie. It is bleak. It is dark all the way up to the end. Yeah, there's a dark humor that runs through it, but it is pretty staked, dark and bleak, but it feels right. This one, the way it ends, without going into it, back to your action movie comment, that's what it felt like to me. I'm like, what the hell? What's happening right now? Why Why? Why did this suddenly turn into like a melee? I don't, what is going on? Like, I felt well, like- I gotta say, I, didn't, I don't like the ending of either movies. So oh, I do you don't? Say, I, I love the ending of the original. It feels- I like- I like the spirit of the ending of the original and I like the spirit of the ending of this movie too. I like the very, very end of this yes, movie. I do too. I do too. Better would, than everything else. Which I realize is hence your little joke at the beginning. <laughs> I, th- I yes. know, but, but yeah. honestly I thought, cause that, that's a pretty, it's a kind of a messed up way and it, it left the, your questions, but in a way I did feel like it was earned. I don't know what you mean about whose story is this exactly. I want to look, get into that more when we get into okay. the spoilers. I thought Amy Simon's, added a lot to this movie i was not a fan of rachel in the original i loved amy simons in this she was fantastic i i have no qualms with her i believe it is i don't know if it's pronounced jete it's j-e-t-e with a little accent mark over it lawrence who played ellie i thought she was chilling i thought she was fantastic i i and in fact that was if i have to it's funny because on paper if you had told me a month and a half ago. Hey, you know what your favorite part of this movie is going to be? The part that's completely and utterly different than the movie you love. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, right. <laughs> but that's exactly where I come down. It's the parts of it that I loved and I wanted more of in a sense, although where it ends up is what's doesn't quite work for me um is the is the stuff with her. And and I just that was for me. Uh and I guess I just needed to I loved it story-wise. I think I just it's super super nitpicky but just there were just just moments that i just thought even i felt like the editor could have helped honestly and i think to your point about editing i want to make sure we also say this i do feel like it felt oddly rushed which i don't I quite, agree i don't quite get that because i think it's almost the exact same length as the original i think they put a lot more into this film I think each of those scenes in the original had a lot a lot of time to breathe yes yes and I, you know, whether it's hiking up to the Micmac burial ground, and sitting and having a beer with Judd. Yes. Yeah. Having a beer, there was just moments that it had time to breathe and that added a lot to the vibe yes. of the movie and the, and the feeling of the place. Yes. 
And I don't think this movie wanted to take the time to do that. One other thing I loved, and I want to make sure I say this, because I, everybody who listened to this up to this point, they God, man, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. What did you, it's, it is not. I want to make sure my rating is probably going to shock people because it's actually not nearly as low as I'm probably making it sound like it's going to be because I don't hate this movie. I, I just, us, Pet Cemetery, It Chapter 2, and Godzilla, King of the Monsters, were like sort of all of the, and, I'm, and I feel like there's one I'm missing in that equation, but the, of movies that I have known for a while that are coming out that I've just been crazy stoked for. So they're yeah. on a little bit of a higher level for me, and if they don't yeah. meet a certain expectation, but it was like this one, I was totally digging throughout a good chunk of it, even though there were certain things that were off, and I was like, ah, kind of wish we had more of that, and, and to your point about the breathing of scenes, I'm like, I, I wish we had a little more of that, but it was not getting me completely off track by the end of it. I was like, okay, well, yeah, all right, that, that happened. So that's how I felt. But I will say that one element of this movie that I actually really liked, I love the cat in the first film. I think he's a, it's a beautiful cat and he's so unusual looking as, as cats go. This is how I always visualize church. This looks like the cat on the front of, of the book from 1983. Doesn't it? It was perfect. But they also added so much to the cat's character. Yes. Which sounds funny to say that this is how the cat should behave. Yes. Yes. Like they they made it an entity. This cat was scary. The first church, because I love the thing. They, yeah. I mean, maybe we can have some time to go into how they did the effect with the eyes or whatever, but which was cool. And it looked cool. But Very even cool. watching rewatching it, church has never really affected me per se. But this one, this cat is awesome. <laughs> well, church is, I, has always kind of been iconic. Yeah. And I think this movie earns that iconography. <laughs> like it makes yes. it, this is kind of what I always thought it was going to be. Do you remember that book cover from the eighties? If you look at the collectors, they actually <sighs> captured it to a degree on the collector's edition of the DVD. Okay. A little bit. They, they captured some of the aesthetic, but it's funny because the cat on the cover of the DVD looks way more like the church in the 89 version. But if you go, go back and just Google later on the images of the 1983, really, I think it would have been the paperback for sure of Pet Cemetery. that cat in those, in my, and in my head, the way I remember reading the book, that one from this movie, that is how I, I have always pictured Church, 100%. They well, and it. one of the biggest changes with Church, I think, is bringing in that Wendigo piece again. Stephen King changed how his monster, quote-unquote, worked when he adapted his book into the screenplay in the original time. Yeah. It went from something that was kind of an evil force to more just like a feral zombie kind of thing. Yes. And I think they brought back that evil force. It's almost more like a possession uh, yeah. than it is anything else. Like it's like once something has gone and been soured, it becomes possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo is kind of how I took this interpretation as opposed to the way the first film is handled. So yeah. I love that change. I think it's, they're both scary in different ways. Mm -hmm. And there are things I love about the original. There's a scene, a flashback scene in the original that harkens back to Frankenstein in many ways, yeah. but, but particularly in, in text where he says, you know, I love dad, hate living or whatever. Yes. He says. Like, yes. Like that's a brilliant line and a brilliant play on, on Frankenstein. And I, and I just think I love that too, but I do think that this version is a little more sinister. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I do think there's also an inherent sadness that the 89 version, while it may yes. never reach the level of depths of grief that you're talking about, I think it has it more so. And in a lot of those little side stories, I think it has you it. You know what? You just talked me out of my opinion, dude. Just <laughs> saying that, I, I prefer the 89 take, I think. Yeah. I think the reason I liked this one 
in the moment is because of what we get with Judd's character too, because I think that's important. That's a huge omission from the original film that I think is a major weakness then. Yeah, I, I think what, I think really where I come back down on this one for me personally is I do not hate this movie. It didn't, it did not, I did not come away from going, oh, they completely, the fog, the remake of the fog. Did you ever see that? Yeah. Okay. That I was angry. That I was like, what did I even do? Why? Why? Why did you bother? And here's the thing. I think I sometimes created for myself a reputation of somebody just, I hate remakes to hate them. It's like, I don't. I liked the, the Friday 13th remake. I liked it. I started the, the Nightmare on Elm Street one and for some reason something happened and I couldn't finish it and I just literally have never gone back to even bother because <laughs> I've heard so many people hating on it. I was like, yeah. eh. I like, watched the first 30 minutes. I was like, eh. Um, I, I think it's well known. I'm not a particular fan of the zombie version of Halloween, but we, so we won't go there. But for the most part, a lot of remakes I really actually like if they do something a little different with the material. And and so it's not that. And again, I go back to, I don't consider this really a remake. I consider it yeah. a, a rev- someone else's vision of a source material. Kind of like if you yeah. were doing a Shakespeare reinterpretation. So, but my problem with it is the couple of key things that make that first movie so meaningful to me are just completely mm. devoid of this one. And then there's a couple of other things where I'm like, why? why? Like, why that? They completely- well, let's talk about all this in the verses okay. segment, the right. which will be spoilery. And Very spoilery. Let's finish, let's finish this up really quick. I, I guess I just would say to that point generally is I think having not been a big fan of the nightmare on Elm street films, I, even though there are things I really greatly appreciated about them, it was easy for me to enjoy that remake. Cause I felt like it really condensed some of the more interesting parts of that mythology, you know? Yeah. Um, I understand why fans would hate it. Freddie. And uh, yeah. Yeah. But again, <laughs> Freddie was my least favorite part. Oh, see, of I love night- Freddie. That's <laughs> of the nightmare. On Elm street films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I just didn't like him as a character. I liked the idea of the dream logic. Yeah. And the, like, I would love to see a movie called dream warriors that freddy freddy krueger is not in yeah like that's and, then, <laughs> you know? and here's where people josh and i will part ways <laughs> because i do not want yeah. to see that movie i want freddy in it well that's actually what i was gonna tell people last time i thought you know there are people are like hey if you're worried that joel and josh are just gonna agree about everything wait until next week <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so i don't know i, I yeah I, anyway my whole point is i wasn't a big freddy krueger fan so so the remake was more palatable for me uh-huh. i wasn't a huge pet cemetery fan i really enjoyed this remake and i and i i agree with you there are some missing elements from the first film i just don't think i don't think the first one's perfect either mm-hmm. and so i kind of feel like there's still a lot more to mine out of the story and that's to me maybe the most frustrating thing about a film like this is you're like this could have been perfect. Like it's really close. Like they got, they got 75% of the way yes, there. That's a, that's a really good way of putting it. Cause that's and what it I actually felt. makes it more frustrating. Yeah, in a way it does. But, but I will throw this at you. It makes it a little frustrating and maybe I'm really um, 100% on an Island by myself on this feeling, but there's a part of it that thinks, yeah, except for the fact that in 15 years, we're going to get another pet cemetery movie <laughs> and, and hope springs eternal and they may get it right. You know what I mean? It, it yeah. may happen. Yeah, I hope they make another one. I do. I hope we don't have to wait 30 more years for it like we did the first time. I doubt it. But, I doubt it. Uh, because, But it's sad because because I think the cast was great on this. I think it looked beautiful. And I just think it, that's a, that's kind of a sucky thing to wish for the day it comes out. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, I, know. I, hope they, I hope when they remake this in in 15 years, they add two more scenes to it and add it uh, like 20 seconds. And it, and it nails like, it. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know. And, 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 be, and look, at the end of the day, too, and, and for those of you that have seen it, I mean, there is some scenes with like horror in the daylight, but it just never... I don't know. It just doesn't quite capture for me because it's like it's horror in the daylight, but everybody's kind of like in in the shadows of a bunch of trees. You know, like it's never yeah. it never quite just captured it for me. So, again, I don't I don't hate the movie. I just I don't I did not come out of it with this feeling I was hoping I would come out of it with. That's the problem. I'm just I would just tell people, uh, you know, if they if they haven't seen the original you're probably going to enjoy this. Like that's fair. No, I think that's totally fair. I think people who don't have any affinity, because I'll, I'll admit this up front. Part of it was that nostalgia bias. I went in with an expectation. I acknowledge all of that. I think the the issue, though, is as the movie went on, I remember thinking, you know what? I kind of dig this. This is cool. I like this angle. I like where they're going with this. Yeah. But it's just by that last 10 or so minutes, I remember thinking it was weird. It's always like all of the oxygen just went out of the room for me. Like I was like, oh, Okay. And it's funny how just an, an ending like can really, if it doesn't hit you right, it can taint everything that went before it. And that's kind of where I landed with it. I'll also say I didn't love Pascal in this, but I did prefer him to the other film. I still think as a character, I just, it's just not my favorite thing. It, it feels too derivative of American World from London in the original. And then this one, this just doesn't make that much sense to me in terms of like, uh, just the logic of the world. It doesn't seem like it makes sense to, within its mythology. Well, but, and th- that um, was my other big gripe with this movie. And I didn't know. But if I did would... think it set him up way better. Like, I don't feel like the first, I feel like the first movie makes even less sense. Well, it's like about... it set him up better. The, to your point about things, not if they had just added just a little bit extra, it set, yeah. mate set him up a little bit better. But at the same time, then he just kind of disappears from the rest of the movie other than a little bit. And and I felt like regardless of how you feel about Pascal as, like, as in the performance and everything from the original, he feels integral to what happens. I don't really think he does. I feel like he feels tacked on to me. Well, he does when we get into our spoiler part because there's something okay. specific that I that, that now that I know this, it's like, yeah, this is this was with the missing piece for me. And it's a it's a okay. subtle thing, but it, it's there. I think it's really all right. There. All right. So ratings? I, we should mention Dave didn't get a chance to yes. see this one. He probably they probably think we're just total jerks sitting here not letting Dave talk. Yeah, right. I keep raising my hand, but nobody's. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no, just yeah. Um, and not going into it too deeply. I've had some major health issues uh, the past month. It's been a miserable month, and um, uh, I did get to see us for the last episode. I almost walked out of us four times because of what I'm going through. But I was so into the movie, I had to stay and see it to the end. But I'll go into that a little bit later because, um, you know, things are coming down the road for me. But, uh, yeah, I did not get a chance to see this film. We appreciate you s- sticking through this conversation. Having that, <laughs> no, it's been it's been great. I do still want to see the movie. I will still see the movie. I know what Joel's talking about, for, and it, it has to do with the commentary. I can't wait till we get to the versus the spoilerific <laughs> part. And you can pipe in on that one. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All right. So Josh, you got your, your rating and recommendation. Yeah. I really liked this movie. I think if someone hasn't seen the original and you go see this and this is your first pet cemetery experience, you're gonna have a blast. I think if you are a casual pet cemetery movie fan like me, um, I think you can even do the thing where you watch the original and then go see this. I think they're fun to watch by comparison. I think if you're a super fan, probably take Joel's advice and maybe go watch this one and then yep. cheer, cheer yourself up by watching the original. <laughs> but personally, I think this handled a lot of my issues with the, with the original film. Like a lot of things I disliked about it, this one did better. There were a few things that I thought that this 
fell short on um the mcmac burial ground is one of them i think that's just a, an amazing set yes. in the original yes and and the journey's a little convoluted in the original but this one i thought sucked yeah it almost didn't seem it almost seemed like they were just in a swamp <laughs> it's like, what, yeah what, what, yeah at the top of the, you know how there's swamps when you climb up a mountain. Oh, totally. That's usually where they are. That's where they're found. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was lame. Um, but I do. So I'm just interested in the Wendigo mythology. I think that would be actually a really fun thing to do. Maybe next Thanksgiving for our show is to either do a Indian burial ground show or or a Wendigo show oh, yeah. or maybe a crossover. I feel like there's a ton there to discuss. But uh, by and large, I kind of like this movie better. But because of what, like, just like I said, it lacked a certain amount of heart. And and I totally agree with you that I feel like the Judd relationship, especially, you just wanted more. That was Edwin brought so much to the yep. original film. Yes. I just needed a little bit more here. Like, just give me a couple more scenes here of Judd. And, uh, but, I, but I think they did some interesting things that actually uh, really worked with, with Judd here, too. I, again, I think they were making really smart decisions. The execution wasn't always in my taste, I guess. So yeah. uh, for me, I'm going to give this the same rating. I'm going to give it a 7.5 out of 10. I think this is a film worth seeing in the theater. You go support a film like this in the theater. I think it's worth watching. And I will definitely consider buying this when it comes out, depending on what the special feature situation is. Okay, very cool. And and I will say, I will probably buy it myself just because. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't leave the type of taste in my mouth that makes me not want to. Uh, and I will say the other thing about this movie that I loved leading up to it was a lot of the promotional materials. I thought the posters I kept coming across, the standees, mm-hmm. I loved the design of of what they were doing with a lot of the promotional materials for this movie. So often movies we get, we still get that sort of Photoshop. I mean, it's a very high quality Photoshop job, but it's, you know, it's very, you get images of the people and it's never, it doesn't have that artistic element to it. I really felt, yes. uh, I think I actually, even when I was at, uh, when I went to see us, I think I sent you and Dave both, that it's the first time I'd seen that poster for Pet Cemetery, And I sent you guys a, a shot of it and it just, everything I was seeing, I loved the marketing material. So, um, yeah. but, but that aside for me, when I was up until about 15 minutes to the end of this movie, it was in the 7.58 range for me. I was actually really liking it a lot. And I still, again, do not hate this movie, but I think by the end of it, it had solidified for me that sort of feeling that I was, it was gnawing at me throughout the whole thing of like, what is missing? What is, why do I feel like I don't, I, I don't hate this, but something's off. You know, I just had it through the whole thing, but by the end it, it was solidified. So for me, it's going to be a 6.5, which does not mean I know some people 6.5 is like super low. It's that for me is like, you know, it's a watchable movie. I'd say if you're a horror fan and you want to support horror, you know, so that they keep making them, <laughs> I say go to the theater and see it. Uh, if you are a person who is, like Josh said, sort of just a passive fan of the original or you don't care or you've never seen it. Absolutely. I think you'll have a fun time because you aren't going to have that base necessarily to go in with to go why is something missing because there won't be anything missing especially if you've never seen the original um but that being said if you have seen the original and you really do love it and if you're like me and you got a bit of the nostalgia goggles on for it be aware (laughs) that the things that you think might tick you off 
aren't necessarily the things that might tick you off <laughs> and, and, and the, and the things that do are, it's probably going to be again, back to that idea of just letting things breathe and, and the dynamics of characters and how they, they connect and interact and how, how important they are to the protagonist's journey. I think that that is an element that's really missing from this movie, in my opinion. So like for me, it's 6.5. I say, th- see in the theater to support horror. I'd say rent it when it comes out, but buy it if you're a Stephen King fan or if you're a Pet Cemetery fan. It's not, and I'm sure the extras will be great. I have no doubt that they'll they'll load it with fun extras, and and when they do that, for sure, I will want to own it. So uh, that is my take on Pet Cemetery. Very nice. Spoilers. All right, so that was our feature review of Pet Cemetery 2019. Be sure to go over to horrormoviepodcast.com and comment at the bottom of this, uh, the show notes for this episode. Let us know what you think and how unbelievably wrong Josh is. <laughs> uh, we don't have to make it about that. <laughs> or, or Joel, or Joel, or Dave. Just say, Dave, Dave, you're wrong, Dave. <laughs> Just once I'd like someone right. to be mad at Dave at the end of an episode. Oh, they can do it. Go ahead. Dave's like the Peter of this show. Everybody, everybody loves Peter and Richard McGee. Everybody loves Dave. All right. So let's go ahead and spoil. Let's have our... I feel like we should do like the... In this corner, we have yeah. the Pet Cemetery movies. Reverses. We're spoiling them. Josh? Okay. I mean, listen. Again, every measurable metric on paper, I, you know, I think the cinematography is comparable, arguably better. Uh, the score of the original was pretty, pretty amazing. I love so the original I, score. I, I still like the score, but I think they're at least maybe the original edges just went out a little bit for me um, there, but I think they're close to comparable. I think the cast in this minus Fred Gwynn is light years better and every single person, except for, I will say the little kid who uh, plays gauge, he's not better than Miko Hughes, yeah. but he's also good. Yeah. So He's not, he, he doesn't have that extraordinarily cute factor of Miko, but he's still strong here. Sure. Um, he's given a lot less to do, which I think is a great move for the filmmakers because I, that never quite worked for me in this version. Ellie dies. Okay. And I think that's so much smarter to have just someone who's a little bit older, a little bit bigger bodied, has a little bit more capability that can feel a little bit more dangerous I, you know, I think that was just a smart move. And, and, and I like, of course, I love the way it's done in the original with him dying. It's just so heartbreaking. It is. This one doesn't hit as hard with the heartbreaking nature of the death, but I think it does work way better in terms of uh, Ellie coming back to life than it did with Gage coming back to life. I think that is an element that this film has that the other one really doesn't work in my opinion. Um, yeah. I think Judd is good, could be great, but isn't. And I just, I don't know if it's just the fact of having, giving him less time. I think, the, honestly, I think the accent's a big part of it. Uh, but Lithgow's great in this movie. I think it was a mistake to go with the beasting from the book as opposed to uh, saving Gage yes. from the road. Yes. They should, that, add, that immediately lets you know this is a good person. 
And I think, and maybe that's intentional, but Lithgow comes off kind of creepy. At the yes, I thought the same exact thing. <laughs> yeah, I like if that. I'm Rachel, I'm like, this guy's. We're never, yeah, never be alone with this man again. I, I just walked into, I just walked into a pet cemetery in the middle of the woods, and my little bitty girl is sitting there with this old dude. He's talking about rubbing mud on her leg. I mean, what's happening? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the pet cemetery was was equally good i disagree with you i think both like the micmac indie ground this pet cemetery to me felt like what the real one that stevie king probably found looked like and i somebody might say oh that's that's good that's what it should no i loved the nature of when you look at the visual of the original uh, and you compare it to the micmac how there's a a a, a symmetry between them there's there's a and almost an unintentional subconscious connection between the two worlds whereas this one now compared to the burial ground the pet cemetery amazing uh but but the pet cemetery in this one again felt like oh yeah i imagine that that's probably what a real pet cemetery looked like <laughs> I mean, that's what it looked like to me right well i guess for me they both worked equally i liked the markings on the trees and the kids masks i thought that was a little over the top but i liked it like it felt like ceremonial you know and yes. i think that's a cool thing for a for an area that has this mythology around it yeah so I, that was exciting i thought I agree with you, though. I think just a lack of design with the Micmac Burial Ground is a huge mistake. The other one was over the top, but it, but also it was incredible. It was, yes. just was incredible yeah. looking. And this was just so bland. There was almost nothing there. And in fact, again, I go back to kind of like I imagine in real life, a, a, a burial ground that's hundreds, if not thousands of years old, probably is going to be covered with sure. foliage and trees and everything else. So it makes perfect sense that, that, you know, it wouldn't look like much. But but I've lived in the mountains and you can find in any mountaintop some cool valley or clearing or landmark, uh, you know, that would make it look epic, even if it's not the same epic in the same way sure so i don't know i think it's just a mistake but anyway so those are all my reasons that i think this one's better that church is light years better yes but and and i think the twist i i I like every narrative change they made to the film um but i okay so to the Mm -hmm. wendigo thing i i love the idea of there being this force that's causing all of this stuff to happen Mm mm-hmm and, and, you know, they talked about this in the original film, too, that the Micmac people left because the, the ground had soured. They knew something evil was happening here. I don't know why neither film has chosen to delve into the Wendigo. Maybe it just feels like a different idea or a different type of film. That's fine, because I think at the heart of it, the part that matters is the parental devastation when their child dies. The What happens to a marriage? What happens to... Um, per, and that's why, and honestly, that's why the Zelda stuff never worked for me that much either. It just felt kind of tacked on. Like it, it's interesting. I like it, especially I like the new version. To be honest, I like ninety percent of the execution of Zelda better in this one. Do you really um, see? I that yeah. was actually again early on in the movie. That was one of my bigger annoyances, and it was mainly because I thought they introduced the concept of her way too early. I thought because I think if you go back to the original, it's forty something minutes into the movie before really? she ever. Isn't it this? Isn't it the same discussion that it gets brought up in? It is, but the circumstances are completely different. In the, in the sense that I, and I'm trying to remember. He says, "Wow!" And that's the other thing is, I feel like with the new one, I don't really a, a lot of the narrative detail. I'm trying hard to remember like what the connective right. tissues are. But in the original, you had because you had that subplot of the of Missy, the housekeeper. 
dying, which leads to the funeral, which leads to Ellie oh. having the conversation. And this one, it's just sort of like, oh, you know, they have this conversation and, and the mom is uncomfortable. And that's the other thing. I never got this. And as, as great as uh, Simons is, I think she's fantastic. She never quite gave me the same level of like just oddly almost uh, compulsive neuroses around the idea of death as I got in the original right. like that. And again, it's more melodramatic for sure. But I definitely got the sense that that Rachel Creed in the 89 version is got some kind of almost to the point where it's like, you know, it's all fine. We're just going to pretend nothing wrong, nothing wrong. You know, like that sort of almost manic yeah. <laughs> element, uh, which she never had that yeah. in this. You know, she seemed almost more annoyed right. which with I preferred. <laughs> see, I did. I don't prefer that. I, I, I want to know because the character yeah. it's and, and I think back to that commentary thing, which I know, to be fair, you know, since you didn't have a chance to listen to it yet, I don't want to I want to make sure that that I'm being fair on this point because I mean if you had maybe and I didn't have this knowledge going into the new movie either yeah when it comes to what Mary Lambert was saying and I want to make sure we get to that a lot of these elements like in the original movie she talked about the movie really was it's of course about death but for her the real horror about it is that idea of and Dave feel free to jump in on any of this stuff right, uh, right. Uh, it's is it the talking about death like that time you have to first tell your kids like i remember my yeah. dad passed away in 2015 yeah. and i had to tell my young kids their grandfather was gone when they just seen him the day before and he was doing better you know what i mean like that that mm-hmm. the horror of that honestly that's the most the most difficult thing i've ever had to do in my life like i was more traumatized by telling my kids that than i was by the call i got telling me my dad was gone like that Right. Screwed me up right. so bad. So that idea of having to 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 tell that story and to to have to address it and not even just have to deal with it, but to have to just talk about it and have that idea of it. And the the fact that I don't feel like the new movie captured that really at all for me. And the thing with Zelda is pivotal to that. And in like the shock value factor, like the fact that they had her die by falling in the dumbwaiter. I don't remember if that's in the original book or not, but the way she dies is so much more oddly more realistic i think in the uh, 89 version to where but it's upsetting as hell i mean just the fact that that little girl sitting there next to her sister she's choking and it's it's so yeah. disturbing i mean it's really upsetting right. it, it is and that is a, a big big part of that original movie because a pet cemetery is in many many ways a child's first introduction to death and yeah. how they learn about death and that was a point mary lambert was making in that commentary as well that, you know, this is how kids learn about it. And the, Rachel's reaction to it all, and we find out it's because of Zelda, she doesn't want her kids to know about that. She doesn't want her, that's why she makes, um, that's why she makes her husband promise the girl the cat's going to be okay. And he looks and says, you, you've got to be kidding me. How can I do that? Yeah. How can I promise that this cat will live and, and everything will be okay? Because the mother in that, in the, in the original anyway, and it sounded like they missed a little bit in, in the remake. I don't, you know, I can't speak to that. But that was her motivation was Zelda and her experience with that is forcing her to say, I want to shield my kids from Mm -hmm. death, from ever learning about death. And that was her motivation. And see, because we get that Judd intro in the in the Pet Cemetery with Ellie. So we completely miss that dynamic of Judd first meeting the family, like you said, Josh, him saving Gage, right? Doing this heroic thing. He immediately has bonded himself to the creeds. I mean, they're they're like, my right. God, you just saved our kid's life, man. You're awesome. And they love the guy. Yeah. And then and then and then we get that hint, right? We get, again letting something breathe. We get that hint of where is the pet cemetery? Oh, yeah, it's a good start, a good walk. I'll tell you, you know, he does that whole thing. And he and then we go, but then we when we go down to the pet cemetery with him and we see Rachel's reaction, you see how like 
frustrated lewis gives you know, gives judd that face of like just yeah let it go this is how she is you know that kind of thing yeah. and then you get but in this one you get the whole thing where, okay ellie goes down there to follow those kids and she's stuck out of the house and rachel's after rachel seems upset because a her daughter's just completely stuck out of their house and they're next to a very busy highway and she seems freaked out because of it b she's also probably a little freaked out that she just walked into a pet cemetery wasn't expecting to and saw some old dude she doesn't know who he is with her little girl i mean so yeah. is she upset because they're in a pet cemetery or because of all of those other pieces you see what i'm saying yeah uh yeah i guess that would that part didn't really work hadn't really worked for me in the original so it, it didn't bother me as much here but i definitely think it it the judd introduction hurt it um either i i, I did like how they streamlined the church's death here because that was one of those things in the original that just felt like a little overwritten Stephen King book kind of thing where it's just like, well, they're going out of town again. And then they're back. It's like, you don't need that in a film, you know, like it's, you can, you can cut out like a whole other family leaves on a trip scene. Um, and, and I, uh, frankly, I felt the same way about the maid's death in the original film. It just felt like, it felt more like a novel. Like we're not, we're spending a lot of time, it's not that much time, but it's it's a lot of time on something that ultimately just didn't feel like it mattered in any well, way. Well, I think it does because it leads us to that conversation, which then leads to, to the reveal of Zelda. But, but I think- you know, which would be so much more interesting to me is the is focusing on Judd's wife. Yes, and, and, and that's in the book, and it is in the book. And the the thing I think you were alluding to, and I don't again, it's been so long since I've read the book, I don't remember all the details. You in the new one, you get that moment where Ellie. In her we learned pro- that Judd buried his wife in the pet cemetery, which for me, the minute I saw the first film, I was like, he definitely buried his wife in the pet cemetery. And that's why this is such a disturbing. You know, what's interesting. See, I don't. So uh, wow, this is sad. When did they say that in the new one? You don't learn it until the very end when Ellie is attacking Judd and then she turns into. Yeah, I saw that part. She turns into her. Yeah. And Ellie says to him you damned your wife to hell because of what you did to her. You buried her in that place, you know? Oh, yeah, I see. I, 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 well, to be fair, I guess you just saw this, what, like two days ago. I honestly don't. I remember yeah. the transformation of Ellie into the wife, which I think happens in the book. Gage does, because what it is, it's not, yeah, it's not Ellie. It's not Gage, of course. It's this demonic force takes on these forms and like it, it right. Gage turns into Zelda in the 89 movie. So I, I think that, that him, you know, his wife kind of confronting him in that moment, I knew something like that happens with Gage and everything. But I don't remember and I don't think of the book that they say he did. I always took it as he buried his dog up there and his dog came back, which, of course, is addressed in both films. And I think what I've always taken it based on some of the things that Mary Lambert and Dave, by all means, come in and and correct me if I'm getting this wrong. But I, I get the vibe that anytime you touch that soil because it's sour it's like it almost like it sticks to you and you're tainted and it's always going to be there because this is the part that mary lambert goes into uh dave uh, that you and i were sort of alluding to earlier i that, was yeah this it, this blew me away that, this, I, the, I, the I, idea of the angels right and the idea yeah, that I, i'm sorry if you want i, I was just going to say that i've been i've been kind of waiting to get to this moment josh because this is this blew me away and it's after i had seen the movie and then as i'm watching it with the commentary on i'm starting to see things a little differently mm-hmm. that pascal was the good angel. He was the one who was going to try to warn Lewis not to, to, to get involved. He, he was the one who was going to warn him. The bad angel is Judd. Wow. Judd yes. is the one who leads him astray. Judd is the one who takes him there and after burying the cat, then tells him things are not the same when they come back. It is yep. Judd yep. that is the bad force in the movie 
and Pascal, who is the good force yes. in the movie. And and and, yeah. she, and when you watch it, by the way, in the commentary, as she's describing this, and you're watching Judd's reactions you to things, you, you see it. See and it. you realize not only that, really? yeah, and that what it is, is that he's, t- by bearing spot there, he t- has got, he's like, he tainted him. It tainted everything. It, it, it's like, it, it goes into the ether. The reason why Missy is important is because she, killing herself, she doesn't know she has cancer. She's just assuming she does. It's that it gets, it insinuates itself into everything and everyone. And the, what's yeah. released, what's released yeah, what, after this happened. Yes. yes. Yeah. After the cat was buried up there. So it presumably it may dissipate a bit over time, but I think it still clings in a way to that individual. So ultimately when Judd takes him up there, because think about the 89 version, he takes him straight there. He go over yeah. the you know, first it was like, oh, we're going to stop here. Whereas in the new one, if I'm unless I'm remembering this wrong, he essentially takes him to the pet cemetery. But the guy's like, and then he while they're standing there, he kind of has that more like, uh, well, wait a second, uh, you know, I'd be like, it's like, well, wait, wait, no, no. John yeah. in the '89 well, version meant to take him there. Yeah, well, I, re- I actually like that interpretation a lot, but I really actually like the other interpretation a lot too, which I feel like is what is. I, which I took from the original, having watched it, and I think they make more explicit in this version, which is once you do it, it's like addictive. Like you, you know, it might not turn out well. And I felt like I felt like I got that from Lewis in the original film. Like he just can't help himself, and Judd tells him, like, "Don't do what you're thinking about." You know, like you know, and he does that in the original film too. Judd's like, "Don't, don't do it, Lewis." Like it's not, it's not going to end well. You well, know, and, 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 and Mary Lambert touches on that in the commentary too, where people will continue to do the wrong thing thinking maybe this time it will work yeah. out rationalization yeah. maybe this time it will it will give me what i want and they're not thinking the whole monkey's paw thing so you i know? love the idea that judd has been through that like it's it's so it, i love the idea of as subtext that the, here's a guy who basically lived this entire story he he buried his dog the dog came back they had to kill it again he buried his wife his wife came back he had to kill his wife and that's just kind of like this ancient evil that exists in this story beneath the surface. To me, that was a major misstep to not put in the original film. And if that's not in the book, I know that in the original book, Judd's wife was alive. Yes. And then she dies yes. during the story. And that I would love to see that, you know, and maybe that we don't know what happened. We get some sense that something's going on over at Judd's house. Like, what's the noise over there? What's the racket? And then... And then the cat dies after that. You know what I mean? Like that would be creepy to me. Like we don't, we know Judd's wife dies. We go to the funeral. That's our excuse to talk about death. There's some kind of crazy thing going over at Judd's house. We never see that he kills his wife. Like we never see that. But then the next, you know, soon thereafter the cat dies and Judd takes, starts taking Lewis on the same journey. He's just been on that. It's interesting to me too. Or if it happened 20 years earlier, that's interesting to me too. But 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 even but throwing that in there, the fact that Judd did this and yeah. know how it's effective, yet took Lewis directly there and said, "Here, why don't you do this?" Yeah, yeah. But you we know? but but that didn't happen in the 89 version, right? It didn't happen in the 89 version, but he knew because after he they did that with the cat, and we we find out later he did it with his dog many years earlier. And on top of that, he knew about Timmy Baderman. He knew what yeah. happened with that kid right. he and knows. he was there where they had to burn the house down to kill yet, him. But yet he still takes yes. him there to bury the cat. And this movie only gives a passing glance to like the Baderman thing. They have like a newspaper article. You see a name of Vietnam vet, Timmy Baderman, something about the body missing. And that's all they say. So yeah, which I don't think you need the Baderman thing again. Like I liked it in the first one. What I like about it in the first one, which I think you convinced me on was better than the 
evil force was it's just sadder it's sadder the frankenstein idea is sadder you're brought back to life you don't want to be alive like that's that's truly tragic yeah you know and so i like that element that basically in the 89 version they kind of come back as zombies essentially like whereas in the new version they come back as these possessed creatures possessed by the evil spirit of the forest or whatever you know but yeah, and I, I do know. I do want to say though that back to the real quick the funeral thing, I was it was so subdued <laughs> in this. It was so yeah. it's literally just like everyone's standing stoically, single tear comes down Lewis's cheek. And, and I'm assuming That's what I thought was interesting, is he is blaming Judd in this version. Yeah, I guess, yeah. That's what's happening at that funeral, in my opinion. Yeah. Is he's and in fact I thought he murdered Judd in this version at first. I was like, did he just murder Judd? You know, when he goes over to his house that night? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought happened. I thought he blamed Judd for his daughter's death and he killed him. And I was like, this is a bold choice. (laughs) (laughs) That actually would have been interesting. But I think I feel like I I, but regardless of that, I think the thing that was missing for me that I love so much about the original, if the original hadn't had this, I don't know that I would feel remotely like I feel about the movie is that dynamic between those two characters is that, you know, friendship that they have. Yeah, there's like a friendship, but there is almost like now knowing the whole good angel, bad angel thing, too. And the idea that regardless of whether he buried his wife up there or only his dog, you know, he got a he got a fix one time. And, and it's not the it's not that he's evil, right? It's no, like the good angel no. on your shoulder, bad I angel think, on your I shoulder. I think Judd is as much a manipulated individual as anybody else from this force that's out there. But I think what right. happened is by him doing it, by him giving in to the temptation, right? Biting the apple from from the tree, yeah, so to speak. Right. By, right. It's more that. Yes. Yeah, by doing that, that, he has tainted himself, and thus. But I think that he thinks maybe okay, yeah, I could I could get this guy to do it. It'll be different for him. Almost like some like an addict, right? Like he's just he's yeah. convincing himself. He's using his own rationalization for why it'll be okay for Lewis. It'll be totally different for him. Yeah. You know, even though Which it I think be. you get in both versions. And I love that about this story. I love or is he that. trying to get him to, to do it to uh to share the experience or maybe relieve him of some of the experience? Or some of the guilt. Know. I mean, you well, know. based yeah. on Judd's reaction when later on when he has that moment of breakdown where he goes, I feel like I might be res- responsible for the death of your son and all that stuff. I, I think that that moment is so pivotal for his character because it shows that he knows that he can't control this. He he's just as addicted to wanting, you know, to, to wanting to have seen if it could be different for somebody else. But yet he also has to deal with that unbelievable guilt and shame that once he set this emotion with the cat, that's what led to gauge being killed like it, it, it he yeah. is responsible he is or at least culpable for what happened right. i think my appreciation for both films just went up 0. 0.5 0. 0.5 <laughs> <laughs> so now they're both eights is it should we change it <laughs> yeah no I, I'm, not, I'm not changing my rating but okay. yeah I, okay I, I mean so i don't know in terms of verses i you know i again i think all everything measurable about this seems better but it lacks something else and so i don't think either are perfect films i have a lot of problems with the original film uh, a lot of problems. So I, I just think they're both great movies though. And I think the story is fantastic. I think the story at the heart of this, what Stephen King created is magical. It's beautiful and torturous and, and, and just a wonderful example of what horror can do. I, I love this story. I love the world of the story. And um, I don't think either movie is perfect, but I do think they're both really interesting adaptations of, 
what I assume, and we'll soon find out, is great source material. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I will do right before we wrap it up. I do want to ask you. So the ending. Do you, do you mind if we go here, okay, Dave? So what is the, yeah. Well, so if it's not the very ending that you hated, no, and it, you and it's not Ellie's performance, which I had a little bit of trouble with. What is it that you dislike about the ending? I disliked the way it all came together and the way Lewis goes out because it again it made me feel like. There was no sense like Lewis is a character. It felt rushed. Number one, it felt very kind of almost typical Hollywood. Like, let's have a really big ending. Like, you know, like whatever, like everybody killing everybody. And it's like, you know, okay. so uh, we're about to go here, Dave. Are you okay with this? Go for it. Okay, I'm good. Okay, so we've got Ellie, you know, creepy Ellie, which, by the way, that whole effect, I'm assuming they did it at CGI with her eye where it's like her whole half her face was probably had to be reconstructed. It's like her left eye is always kind of drooping down a little bit. It was so creepy looking. I assumed it was makeup, but but CJ makes more sense. Yeah, it's super creepy. I thought that was fantastic. Also, the brushing the hair scene was so rough that you you, you didn't like it. Oh, I love it. I love that part. But it was it was so just so grotesque. Oh, it was. Yeah, he, she, he's brushing her hair after she's come back. Dave, it's like awful. he keeps getting grabbed and tangles. He's like, what's happening? And she's like, what's wrong? She kind of looks back at him and he pulls it back and certainly parts her hair and you see all the sutures from where they had to stitch her, skull, her scalp back together. Ugh, it's uh, Oh, it's so awful. But, but so it ends with, you know, Gage and Rachel return and uh, they're they're stuck in the house with Ellie. Uh, at this point, I guess Lewis has gone across, realized Judd's gone, and they end up where Rachel is upstairs, drops Gage down to Lewis. I love that he puts him in the car. I can imagine myself telling my kids the exact same thing. Do not open this door. It doesn't matter who it is. Yes, like, that was realistic. You know, Don't yeah. open it for anybody, and he keeps the kid in the car. Okay, fine. And so then he goes back, and in the meantime, Ellie has... Uh, attacked Rachel and she's not quite dead yet, but he's, she's attacked her. She does the whole thing about you. Like, you know, you're not really my daughter and you know, all this kind of, it was all, it, I was actually okay with all that. Cause technically Gage also killed Rachel. Right. So, yeah. and I love how Rachel goes out in this movie. I love that. She's like, do not bury me there. Like, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Do not bury, Don't bury me, me in yeah. that place. Yes. Yeah. And then, and then he's, and you, but here's where it starts to skew for me. He's like, okay. he's not going to. And Ellie knocks him out. Right. Mm-hmm. And then takes Rachel herself to do it. I see. And that's yeah. where I'm like, whoa, wait, screech tires, because suddenly now you've changed the entire dynamic of Lewis being so down the rabbit hole, the addiction of this place, the pull yeah. of this place, the evil of this yeah. place doesn't matter because they'll just do it themselves. You know what I'm saying? That's like true. I, I, that yeah, bugged the true. crap. And so that moment on, I was like, okay. And then he, so, and then of course, and I will say it was a good surprise that he goes up there. He follows, he, he comes to, he follows them up there. And he attacks Ellie and you think it's going to be similar to that moment with Gage in the original where he's going to have to finally. And that, by the way, you lose this element, which is how horrific is it? It's bad enough to lose your child. But then if you think about the 89 version and in the book, you then have to put your own child down again. I mean, talk about adding insult to injury and yeah. the ultimate and just going to if, if that didn't break you, nothing will. So yeah. he doesn't get that opportunity, though. Why? Because Rachel now living dead skewers him in the graveyard and the movie ends with the three of them zombified presumably with a can of gas because i guess they burned judd's place down approaching the car with gauge in it and then you hear chirp chirp yeah 
which I love that. But, you know, I think I, I, so I'm not being as familiar with the original film as you. I didn't pick up on the nuance of, and, and it is a major heart wrenching thing when he has to take his wife back up there at the end. Yes. And so I think you're right. I think they should have figured out a way for that to still happen. I, I don't mind. I like that he gets killed though. And I love that they show up to kill gauge. Like, I think that's a brilliant ending. I wish it would have been something like, I don't know. We, we need a new segment of the show, which is like, you know, fix my film. Like how do, how would we <laughs> our, our armchair filmmaker where we just sit and yeah. like with Monday our, morning quarterback it. <laughs> yeah. With potato chips on our stomachs, <laughs> telling them how to make their movie better. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I like what they did. I like how Rachel doesn't want to be buried there. I like how the whole family shows up dead at the end. I, they should have found a way for that draw to still work on Lewis and to make him try to kill Ellie. I don't know. There, there had to be some way to do it. Maybe what happens was he does kill Ellie. Then he takes Rachel up to bury her. And then, but then Ellie's not dead and she kills her dad. Yeah, maybe. But I think the other problem you got is if you don't do something like that in this version, you know, we were led to believe from the 89 and again, I don't remember if it's in the book or not, but that idea that Judd puts forth to Lewis when he's going to bury church, you got to bury. It's the rule. You got to bury your own. So obviously yeah. somewhere along the line, somebody maybe figured out they tried to bury something else, or what it may boils down to is if you bury it, it's it's kind of always bonded to you was the vibe I got, right? That you yeah. remember he says, the old church is your cat now. So, but by by Ellie taking Rachel up, then it's like the demonic force is taking its, like, why? Why does it need that? Like, why does it need to populate <laughs> other people on its own. Does that mean you go know say like it doesn't I don't get that. I don't get what the what the draw is. Why would Ellie want to take her mom up there to be infected by whatever this thing is to, to she'd come back? Does that make sense? Like I don't, I don't that's where I'm I'm really struggling with the dynamics of that. I get uh, why Lewis would well, do it. I guess I see it like a body snatcher thing like they want to take over. But why? Maybe it doesn't matter that doesn't matter to me okay well it matters to me because i completely to me to me it's a story that's perfect because it's the evil wendigo spirit it wants to infect everything it can i i think it's the idea that once you release this evil by setting it in motion by in this case barry church it it's almost like it just seeps into the water supply and affects every almost like a needful things right you have people just reacting because his presence there and he's getting them to turn on each other like there's this unseen force that's driving people to do things that they might not normally have done had they not otherwise been affected by this malevolent force i'll tell you what stephen king does that i love so well and i don't know if he's the first person to do it but i first thought of it when I've heard him talk about it is the idea of taking a haunted house movie and making a haunted town, you know, like he did with dairy and it. And as he does in pet cemetery with Ludlow and as he does with in needful things with, is that castle rock that town? I can't remember. Yes. But the idea that this whole area is infected somehow. Yeah. yeah. That's a cool idea for horror. And I, I don't know that anyone else has, pulled that off to the same level he has. I really enjoy it. I yeah. love that feeling. Yeah. I think you get that to some degree in some Lovecraftian tales, but the question is he, he does it. That's true. I guess you get that in Smith kind of feel or yeah. you know, a village of the damned, a, a place where the whole place is corrupt. But to your point, King consistently does it and he does it so yeah. well. Like I don't know that anybody does it better than him to where yeah. he, he creates that concept of it's not just a single location though. Obviously he's done that, but it's something that's permeating the ether. It's everywhere. Yeah. 
That's good. And also, should we talk? There's Gage Shine. Is that why he can see Pascal? That was the implication I always felt with Ellie was that, yeah, she was shining. That's what I always took it as in the original. Yeah. All right. So I guess that's pretty much it. And, and, and to everyone's surprise, I didn't hate the fact that they presumably uh, killed a little boy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that was the thing that set you off. You want to know why? The fog cleared and the family walked towards the car. No, the only way that would have made me mad. <laughs> the mist cleared. No, the only way that would have made me mad is if it had been a cheat. So in other words, in the end, it turns out, oh, they weren't. Oh, Lewis wasn't possessed by anything. He was just totally normal the whole time. And you know what? Just a figured he'd off his kid. Then I figure... <laughs> Spoiler alert for the best. <laughs> oh God. Well, I should do it. All right. So that wraps up <laughs> our probably way, way, way too much detail version of a versus segment on Pet Cemetery 89 and 2019. So I'm, I'm calling it a tie for me. You're calling it definitely for the 89 film. Oh, for sure. Dave, we, we look forward to hearing absolutely your take. Yeah. And we definitely look forward to hearing the listeners take, please yep. come to the comments at horrormoviepodcast.com and let us know which version you preferred. If you did prefer one and why. All right. So that brings us to the end of our versus segment. And now let's go to our interview with one of the writers of the new pet cemetery and friend of the show, Matt Greenberg. At this point in the show, we are joined once again by Matt Greenberg. Matt, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Our listeners were really fond of the times we've had you on to talk about 1408 as well as Halloween H2O. And you also made an appearance on our other sister show, the Universal Monsters cast, as we were discussing the Dark Universe and the launching of that at the time. And you talked about... Just your experience in adaptation. So you kind of you did talk a bit about Pet Cemetery at that time, mm-hmm. and I'm sure Pet Cemetery came up when we talked about 1408 as well. But um, but I'd love to just dig into it a little bit deeper if you don't mind, and I think our listeners would love to hear. Dude, for you, I, I, I'll give you the whole afternoon, man. You know, I'd rather do this <laughs> than my other stuff right now. So that's cool. We got a lot of. <laughs> tweets and texts and messages from our listeners who were excited to see your name in the credits. So they were, they thought that was fun. And that's awesome. Yeah. We love that. You know? Let's start at the start. Mm-hmm. What initially interested you in tackling pet cemetery? How did it come to be in the first place? Oh, so long ago. Oh, well, I, let me put it this way. Um, this, and this goes back to 2009. So, you know, we're talking a decade, you know, this is almost before yeah. the internet was born, right? You know, <laughs> um, so my, my agent called me up and they said, uh, so uh, Pet Cemetery," And I'm like, yes. It's like, don't you want to know anything about it? No, I'll pitch, please. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's one of those books, you know, and, you know, everybody has their favorite king books Mm -hmm. and for me that is one of my favorites it's in the top four of 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 great king material and um you know i mean obviously i'd seen the mary lambert film you know which was fun um and it's like you know wow they want to you know they really want to do this and and so um and it was with actually it was with Lorenzo de Bonaventura with whom I'd done 1408 and oh wow it was like you know really twist my arm you know yeah. and so you know they put me in touch and uh 
I was like, yeah, let's get into some real trouble this time. You know, it's like, forget, <laughs> forget the room, man. We're going to have, you know, dead cats and dead kids and, you know, the whole thing. But um, no, I, 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 and it was, it was interesting because, it, you know, it was one of those things where, like I said, I said, yes, you know, I want to, I want to come up with a take before I had even really thought about it. And then I was like, Oh boy, I got to come up with a take, you know, because <laughs> you know I hadn't read the book in in a while, and I reread it. And when you read something like that, you're like, usually the first reaction is, "Oh my God, what have I done?" You know, because <laughs> the the fact is, is that the book is well. You've got two challenges. First, is that the book itself is it's a work of of terrible beauty, as one would say. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's it's such a an amazing mix of character and, and pastoral and, and horror and Jesus, I can't believe he went there. And yeah. even freaking Stephen King can't believe he went there. I mean, you know, and now I got to go there, right? And they've already done it as a movie, so I can't do that movie. I got to do some other movie. But then I began to to really sort of drill down into it. Um, and you'll appreciate this story. I come up with this whole, you know, take and everything like that. You know, and one of the things... And I've talked about this in other interviews is, is that as I was reading it, you know, uh, my first instinct was the big change that's in the movie, switching it from Gage to Ellie. Let's explore mm-hmm. that, you know, and I get really involved and I pitch Lorenzo and, and he's great with it. And then we go into Paramount and the executive, a very wonderful woman, I go and I sit down and I see this woman is seven months pregnant. <laughs> I'm about to picture Pet Cemetery, right? And I'm like, well, that was nice, you know. But she was incredibly cool, you know. I mean, she's very, very professional and she's extremely smart. So one of the reasons that Pet Cemetery is so unique, I think, in King's work, and and you know this, you know, you're a King fan, Mm -hmm. is that King is, aside from being a writer, he is a noble soul um, as a human and he has a kind of a dark optimism. I mean, he, he takes his characters, he puts them in ungodly situations, people die, but usually there is an optimism, a hope, you know, even if it's a dim one, right, you know, and yeah. it's like, okay, there's catharsis. And obviously Pet Cemetery is not that. I mean, there is a small sliver of his work, which is so dark and, and, and you're left with this sort of existential dread at the end of it. Yeah. And one of the things that came down to it, and I can't believe I said this in, in, in the pitch meeting, but you know, because I'm a, I'm a pretentious, <laughs> I said, why not? And I said, people, this is Stephen King's King Lear, right? You know, <laughs> and, and the reason I say that is I remember in college attending a, a, a lecture about King Lear and the professor said it's very hard to talk about this play because it goes to a place of darkness that and of course Shakespeare wrote loads of tragedies but again you know there was there was a sense uh, to them of, of some kind of order being restored you know mm. however tragic you know things coming around of, of, of the universe somehow being righted but Lear does not do that Lear ends on a howl you mm. know and and a kind of a lame, Oh, well, you know, Lear's dead. Cordelia's dead. You know, we're going to go on. And it's like, no, this this guy has lost everything. There is no any kind of real moral to the story. It's it's like it. it, it, And and I later learned Shakespeare wrote it in the wake of his son's death. You know, he had had one son 
who died when he was 13. And it, it affected Shakespeare quite a bit. And it was funny because when I read Pet Cemetery, this time I read I read a new edition and I read Stephen King had included an introduction where he talked about the genesis of it, which is where, you know, he had a, a moment, as it is in the book, where they were in Maine, they were by this road, his kid was running to the road. I can't remember which child it was, but he ran out, he jumped, and to this day, he doesn't know if the kid fell or he managed to tackle him before the kid went down before he could reach the road and probably get run over. Yeah. And that put a, a splinter in his mind. What if I couldn't make it? Right. And that really haunted me. You know, it's, it's always really interesting when you're, when you're adapting the work of an author who, who is always himself haunted by that work. You know, I mean, it, right. it's an intensely honest and personal story for a number of reasons so so yeah so that was the genesis interesting well i would say that the level of difficulty in adapting king is probably high for anybody just because he writes so long for one yeah. thing yeah. and so and there's so many kind of offshoots in his flights of fancy that he takes during the novel mm -hmm. but i would say that you've actually had the some of the highest level of difficulty in terms of King adaptation. Number one, with fourteen away, <laughs> yeah. you took something that was almost non-existent and created an entire world around it. Thank you. With Pet Cemetery, you're taking something that's extremely personal to him and that he wrote himself the last screenplay and then you've got to you've got to top that yeah i know how about that like that i was like and i didn't I, i'd forgotten that he had written the original screenplay and it's like oh great i am a complete <laughs> asshole here you know it's like but you know and then with mercy you brought something intensely personal yourself to the table right 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 um and then children of the corn we don't speak of i guess right we, but we, we do not the, the, the less said the better that was that was a quick rewrite of and 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 God be willing, you know it's off. I mean, I always loved the uh, the original story. I mean, for the I mean, you know, the the thing I worked on was like corn three, you know, and I'm like, Jesus, how many corns are there going to be, right? And there's like <laughs> twenty. And I remember talking to the director of one of the later ones, who's a good friend of mine, and 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 he was bemoaning the, you know, the script problems, this and that, but. Corn isn't scary, you know? <laughs> but the thing is, corn can be scary if it's Stephen King writing it, you know? And it's right. like, but, but, um, if we were counting corn, though, would you be the most, uh, I don't know what's the word, prolific writer or, or adapter of Stephen King material at this point? That oh, I, I, I don't think so. I think there, <laughs> I, I, let me put it this way. I, I, I wish I was. That would be a great honor. But I, I think he's had, no, he's had quite a few. Uh, Repeat? Yeah, I mean, obviously Frank Darabont and um, sure Mick Garris and I guess Mick Garris probably holds that title, but yeah, he's done he's done quite a few. Um, You're in the conversation, though. Yeah, you know, occasionally, you know, it's like I'm 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 like sort of like the after dinner mint on this whole thing. You know? it's well, like, it's interesting. So this film went through a very long process between the, your initial pitch meeting till the time it came but, out. You know, but you know that's the thing. It's like, and that's part part and parcel of Hollywood is these things go away and they're reborn and die 
you know what? It's like they get buried in the Hollywood pet cemetery, you know, it's like they they come back and you kill them and they keep coming back. (laughs) And, and, you know, as as a writer, you're not always informed of these things. So yeah, I, I I got a call saying, you know, Hey, they're doing your movie. And I'm like, they are. And I'm like, well, okay. They use your version of the story too, because wasn't there also another iteration where they weren't going to use your version of the story in between there somewhere. So it's a long story. I, when I signed up to do it, uh, they said, you know, well, you're first writer in. And I'm like, great, you know. Yeah. Um, well, it turns out I wasn't first writer in, you know, and I didn't learn this until like two months before the movie came out. You know, it turns oh, out wow. there had been several other attempts made uh, earlier, like year, many years ago. And I hadn't, I didn't even know about these scripts. You know, I, you know, I, and I ended, ended up having to read it because of the credit arbitration, you know, which, which always happens. Yeah. No, what, what had happened was, um, they had brought on a director uh, who in turn wanted to work with this other writer on it because he had some ideas. And there's a very talented um, guy named Jeff Bueller who actually wrote one of my favorite Clive Barker adaptations. He wrote uh, Midnight Meat Train. Um, mm, that's which, right, yeah. Yeah, which is, which is really pretty un- damn unsettling, but yeah. it captures the spirit of, of Barker's story very well. Anyway, Jeff took elements of my scripts and then did his own stuff. So... By the end, you know, in the arbitration to see who gets credit and the determination. The whole process is crazy, by the way. It's crazy, but hey, man, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, it's the way of things. Yeah. Well, so what was it like then going to see this in the theater, having spent so much time away from it? And I know you've had the full range of experiences here as well. You've had a situation like 1408 where it's one of the highest grossing films of all time in terms of horror and, and Stephen King adaptations. It was, I believe before it came out in 2017, yeah. it was the highest grossing Stephen King horror movie yeah. but above misery, above stand by me. Right. But then you have the other experience where you've also been, had the experience of being disappointed maybe by um, physicalizations of your work. So yes. what was this experience like? Well, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking. Yeah. Like I can tell you, it's, it's like you have this child, right? And then at four years old, you know, the kid <laughs> just says bye and walks out. And then 20 years later, <laughs> you know, you get a call saying, you know, your kid wants to see you, you know, and you're like, uh huh. And it's like, it's going to be a little different. And I'm like, yeah. And it's like, and, and, and maybe he might have some tattoos and nose rings and don't say anything about <laughs> the scar on his face. And I'm like, you know, oh, uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I will say I didn't go in there totally unprepared because I I had read, you know, as part of the arbitration, I had read. Oh, yeah. I had read the shooting drafts. I'd seen some of the trailers. And also I, I knew I had heard from other people who had seen it that, you know, who had said, you know, it's it's you know, we liked it. You know, so, so it's like, OK, because I've, I've gotten those calls like, uh, yeah, they made your movie and um lose my number back. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? You know, right. like, um, I'll tell you, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, mm. there's also a big difference between seeing a cut of your film, like on your computer or like on, you know, on your TV at home and seeing it in a theater. And where I saw it, uh, I couldn't make it to the premiere at South by Southwest, but I did make it to the screening of it at uh, LA Beyond Fest at the Egyptian and it was the ideal audience to see it with because they were all pumped for Stephen King. Yeah. They were pumped for Pet Cemetery, yeah. And, you know, they were highly receptive. And I, within the first five minutes, I was like, I took a breath and I was like, okay, I think, I think we're going to be okay. And, and so on and so forth. And 
it was good. You know, it was, it was, it was a good experience. You know, it's, it's interesting the way that people react to certain things. You just never know. You really never know what right. the things that you think, oh man, they're going to love that. They f***ing hate it, you know, and that stupid <laughs> thing you did in the third act with the this and the this, oh my God, that's the best thing ever. And that's where you go back to William Goldman. Like nobody knows anything, you know, you know, especially right. the stuff, you know, you do yourself. So, so, but I know, and, and I thought the directors did a good job. And I think, you know, it, look, I mean, you know, one of the main heroes in, in all of this is Lorenzo. I've known him for, for many years and I've worked with him on numerous occasions. He's a very, very good producer. Um, but what I really love about him is he's not afraid to take risks, you know, mm -hmm. and to, like with 1408, when I gave him my pitch, he was like, this is the craziest wow. thing I've ever heard. Let's try and sell this. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, no hesitation. Right. And you know, when I was talking about that center, I saw that same gleam in his eye. It's like, yeah, man, <laughs> we're driving off a cliff now. You know, <laughs> And, um, and he really, you know, he both understands how to make movies uh, with this material and he also knows, he knows the pitfalls a lot of times, you know. So hmm. I think he is, um, you know, a large part of its success. I mean, he's really, so you know. can you just talk briefly about the choices that you did make to change in the original story? Were you going to the book as your source material primarily? Were you looking at the Mary Lambert film at all? Like, where were you looking and what was guiding your choices in terms of what you wanted to change. That's, that's a really good point. I actually did not go back to the Mary Lambert film, not hmm. because I didn't like it, but because I wanted to have a clear head. I did briefly go through Stephen King's script, his original script okay. for it. And, and that was less, that was just like, I wanted to see how he did it, you know, mm -hmm. and it's more like a stylistic kind of thing. But what I did was I, I realized, and this is the thing that's so important with King, you know, um, and, and, and it's important when you've got any source material of merit. There's usually no way you can completely mimic a book, but you've got to capture the spirit, you know. Yeah. And that's something that I really threw myself into. Even the stuff that I changed, I would say to myself, as I'm writing this, I'm going to pretend that I'm Stephen King. How would Stephen King change it? You know, yeah. and that's not to say you know I reached his level of of excellence, but I tried fiercely to kind of see it through. And actually, it was a really nice thing that he said. He said in one of the interviews, you know, because they interviewed him about you know what do you feel about changing out Gage for Ellie, and he made a, a really great comment. He said it stayed within the spirit of the book, you know, and he made this analogy. You know, it's like you're driving from I don't know Miami to Tampa, you know. And you can take this freeway or you can take that freeway, but you can still, you know, the point is you still end up in Tampa, you know, <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's not like you went south and just went to the Florida Keys and, you know, into the Atlantic. So, so I really tried to, to, to focus in on that. And even some of the smaller touches, you know, the procession of kids, uh, for mm. example. You know, I loved um, that. I loved but, that. Now that's not in the book. Ellie learns that there's a pet cemetery from the kids in school, I think, you know, um, but because everything has to be collapsed and visualized, I, you know, I came up with the procession. Now I did not have them in masks. That was Jeff's idea. And I think the director's as well. I, I, and I thought that was the killer touch. That was such mm. a nice, weird pagan kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously it made it into the posters and the, you know, and, and the trailers and stuff. 
But I thought, yeah, King would have been good with that. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that, that's pretty good. Let's really briefly sidetrack and talk about the trailers because a lot of fans were upset that they spoiled the Ellie twist in the trailer. Yep. How did you feel about that when you saw that trailer? <laughs> well, I mean, look, I, I know I'll, I'll be honest. When I pitched this right to the executive, mm. I said, here's what we're going to do. We are going to play it right up to the moment of the death that everybody thinks it's Gage. You know, people who have read the book are going to know, you know, people who've seen the previous movie, they're going to think it's Gage. Even people who haven't seen it, they're going to, there's going to, you know, we'll play little droplets, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, yeah, boom, that'll knock them right out of its socks. And my point was, look, I don't want to do this just to shock people, though obviously it's a huge shock. Yeah. I wanted to try to capture the feeling that you had when you were first reading the book. And it's a little bit different. You know, it's laid out differently in the book, but like, oh my God, this happened. How, how the fuck did this happen? Right. Because unfortunately, you know, tragically, death like that is that sudden and quick and you're just thrown for a loop. So going back to the trailers, um, I'm not a marketing person and marketing is a completely different science. Um, right. Would I have rather kept it a secret? Yeah, personally. Having said that, one of the things they found, and again, I didn't think that this was going to be, I knew it was going to be somewhat of a big deal, but I didn't think it was going to be as big a de- big deal is I think they saw this as that became part of the bigger conversation about this movie was the switch from Gage to Ellie, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that they basically made the decision, okay, we're going to do this. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to put this out front and center. And, um, you know, I get it. I get it. It's very hard to prejudge these kinds of decisions because a lot of thought goes into it. And it's not just like, yeah, we'll just throw it out there. Right. Look, you know, my, my late uncle used to cut trailers back in the day, you know, and I know what goes into it. You know, people think, oh, they take a shot here and talk to it. No, man, you know, it is, it is an art. But you know, the problem Mm -hmm. dude, with trailers today, as much as I love trailers, trailers today give away most everything anyway, you know, years back, it used to be enough to just have, oh, well, that's weird. What the fuck is that about? And right. things, have, things have like developed to the point that, well, people need to know more. And so, you know, like I have friends. I mean, our, our friend Nick Peterson, yeah. he does not, tries not to watch the trailer. Before, if he wants to see a movie, he doesn't want to know anything about it. Yeah. Oh, and fresh. And I wish I had that kind of willpower, um, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm a weak motherfucker and I, I get on YouTube or whatever and I'm like, oh, okay. I watch it 16 times and, you know, that's that's the way of things. It's rough. It's because, like King said, it's in the spirit of the book, but it's just the perfect switch to throw the audience off. And I I, I had heard that the trailer spoiled a major twist, so I, I was able to avoid it and be surprised in the theater for this one. But I know a lot of people were kind of bummed out about that. Well, yeah. Matt, thank you so much. Is there any other little details you can give us about some things that changes maybe from the original that you thought were important to include in this version? Yeah, no, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff, you know, I mean, you know, there's certain relational things with, with church, with the, with the cat, you know, the, the way cat's so much better in this version of the movie, the so. way, you know, like, for example, in, in the movie, one of the things I have Lewis do is, you know, he, he really re- thinks that this thing is a threat. And so he picks him up and he takes him out. And in the movie, he releases him in the woods. Right. You know, right. And mm-hmm. um, in my script, 
he threw him into a fucking icy river, you know, in a, in a, in a cat carrier, which was pretty freaking harsh. But at that point, yeah. you know, it was like, um, and then of course lies about it, you know, and says, Oh, church ran away, you know, and, yep. and the book, he doesn't do anything like that. Um, I believe. And I wanted to play out the whole, it's one of those weird things that a little choice at the beginning has a snowball effect, you know, their decision, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, the whole decision, you know, not to tell Ellie and then bury the cat and this and that, blah, blah, blah. It starts off for all the right reasons. You know, you can, I, I mean, I've had, conver- I've had pets die on me. I've sat with my children weeping in my hands because their goldfish went belly up in the, in the thing and, and they can't <laughs> right? do it, you know? And it's one of those things in drama that I, I always find very interesting when a little lie snowballs and and leads yes. to huge consequences down mm. down the line. And the other thing too I, I think I really wanted to do was really cast and this goes to the the decision to, to make it Ellie and um, not Gage who gets killed earlier in the film, you know, because when you make a big change like that later in the film, you gotta think back, okay, how's that going to affect the stuff that happens earlier? And the fact is is that I wanted to make Ellie a mirror for Lewis, you know, um, mm. much more of a sort of a dark mirror, you know, an innocent mirror who turns into a dark one and yeah. they become foils for each other, you know? And, and, and one of the things was here's Ellie at the beginning asking all these questions about death and Lewis thinks he knows, right? I mean, he's, he's a doctor, he's an atheist, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then of course the whole paradigm switches because, you know, she's like, ha ha ha, I know exactly what happens after death. And it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying, you know, in that sense, you know, part of what I loved about the Lewis character and in lesser hands than King's, it would have been, you know, eh, but, but King really captured it. Lewis is a character who becomes unstrung partially because he has so set a firm view of the world, right? He thinks he's got this down, you know? And when Judd takes him out to the burial ground, he pulls a thread on that tapestry and it all starts unraveling. And it's horrific, you know, it's terrible. But it's also very true. And that's one of the reasons why I think King is a very powerful writer is because he doesn't write just for effect. You know, there are any number of horror writers who do that. Yeah, His books are still around and is still being made and remade because they capture certain truths, you know, um, about character, about life, about things, you know, and I think that that's, what's so beautiful about him, you know? Yeah. And this, this film, the story in particular, you can really empathize with Lewis. Like any parent would be tempted to do what he does. Any spouse would be tempted to do what he does in the book. Actually that changes a bit here. Did you have anything to do with the, the change of, uh, how the things with Rachel and Ellie play out at the end. Actually, a lot of that was Jeff. Um, I did some, it was a little bit more, um, it was a little bit different in mind. You know, Jeff really, you know, um, extended it more. And I think mine was much more truncated. And I think that one of the things that I thought they did really well, Amy Simons just. She's so good. She was, she was just fantastic. I mean, they were all, it was a really strong cast, you know, but the moment where, and I, I say this having been an actor and, and, and not a very good actor and, and, you know, always, <laughs> always like sort of in, in awe of people who could do it well. The moment when she sets eyes on Ellie. Yes. And the struggle in her face 
between wanting to go and hug the daughter yes. and sensing this is not right. I, I thought that was gold. And it was funny because I think that that's something, this is something that actors bring. You can write this shit on the page, but you can write pages and pages and pages of dialogue and this and that. And a great actor can do it all in a look, yes, you know, or an expression. And that's the brilliance of film, you know. I mean, that, that, that some people, you know, have that ineffable quality. And she really, she really brought it. I mean, she went to a very, very raw and vulnerable place um, in this film. So, you know, I mean, they all did. But, you know, you know kudos for her. Because I think as a mother, you know, it's just, it's the worst nightmare to have mm-hmm. something like that. You know, it's, and, it, and it speaks to a very different relationship than that fathers have to daughters than mothers have to daughters. You know, the line she has, which was not mine, that was Jeff's is like, I would know my daughter, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, I thought that was, that was really smart. Yeah. I love that. And also the, what that leads to for her, of, of her saying, do not bury me in that place. You know, I love yeah. that about yeah. it too. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really crazy. And, you know, I mean, obviously, and, you know, there were a number of different endings, by the way, you know, yeah. uh, to the, tell us, to tell the, us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much I'm allowed to, but okay. uh, let me put it this way. None of them ended well. Uh, but <laughs> I think briefly I tried to, you know, just because Paramount had said at the time, you think you can end it a little bit happy. And I'm like, well, <laughs> a little bit, I, I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of room here and stuff, but the, uh, the ending in one version, it, it, it's not Lewis who buries at the end. Lewis is faced with a choice to kill Ellie, you know, at the penultimate moment, he can kill Ellie and he can leave his wife, who's who's now dead, and and move on, and he doesn't. He's the one who ultimately buries her. Right. Which is what the 89 film does. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way with the book. The ending that they have now, um, and I remember when, when Lorenzo, because that's the one thing I didn't know. I, I didn't know how which ending they had chosen. Mm. And they ended up choosing an ending that I hadn't read. Oh, wow. And all Lorenzo would tell me was, it's darker than the book. And I'm like, how can you be darker than the book? Come on, man. You know, and I'm like, yeah, right. And I know Lorenzo well enough to know that he doesn't say those things just, you know, just to be cocky. And it's like, and I'm like, yeah. and I'm watching it. I'm like, motherfucker, this is darker than the book, you know? And, and it's one of those endings that, I mean, it's it's interesting. People, I know people are divided. Some people think, oh, no, it's just I, I love the ending, and I'll tell you why. Now, are you talking about the graveyard ending or the ending, like the very like the, the final, the final scene where they're approaching the kid in the car? Okay, I love that as well, and everyone on our show loved that as well. Oh, good. Yeah, there no, was be, some debate about the graveyard scene. Yeah, though, it gets well. It, it yeah, and there were I know multi, my version was different than the one that happened there, and there was different stuff. I mean, it, you know, it is what it is. But yeah. for my money, the brilliance of the final moment is and the fact they end it with a little kid looking out of this car is like that's us man that is humanity when it comes to death nobody knows anything we may think we know we can do this and that but we're all the kid in that car looking out the window at something that is potentially just awful beyond words and for my money you know and i said this to the directors i said i think this is one for the books you know i mean mm-hmm. i really think that this is gonna years from now i think they're i, I hope they're, they're talking about this ending because it's not just like boo scary you know it's thematically what king was talking about albeit in a different 
fashion, but it was chilling and it was heartbreaking. And um, yeah, and there's in some ways it feels like the only possible conclusion to a yeah. story like that. Too. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I agree. I thought that was such a nice addition. I, I do like him burying his wife, but other than that, well, because yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, I think that has the same weight to it as burying the child. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. maybe it'll work this time. And that's, that is the biggest flaw of, you know, Lewis and Judd is, well, maybe this time it'll yeah. be different. And that's another, just, just a key yep, human yep. folly, you know? Yeah, no, it really is. And it's just, it's, it's this thing. And again, you know, this is where you have to give props to King, you know, in the sense of, you know, we've all read those books and seen those movies where it's like the character does something and you're like, oh, come on, man, you're not going to do that. But in King's work, you really understand why these people do that. You know, they, they do the unthinkable. And, and, you know, I mean, again, one of the one of the challenges of adapting the book, which, you know, is is part and parcel is, is that in a book you can go into a character's mind. You know, you can hear his thoughts and his musings and, and especially in King, you know, these characters all have sort of wonderful inner monologues. Mm. Um, and obviously in a, in a movie you can't, I mean, unless you do bullshit voiceover, you know, and that, and that, right. and, and, that and that doesn't work. I mean, sometimes it only works if you're Charlie Kaufman, right. You know, mm. he manages to pull it up, but um, that is the challenge there. You know, you've got to convey that stuff. The writer has to convey it through the actions they, they lay out and the actor has to, be able to convey it with their bodies and their faces and their eyes, you know? And so, you know, and that, and again, you know, fortunately we had a, we had a stellar cast, so they were able to really capture it. So. Well, congratulations, Matt. We're all very happy for you. And I I wish the film all the success in the world. It was, it was a lot of fun. I think as a fan, you go in wondering, you know, what are they going to change? What are they going to keep? And I think there is, you know, some trepidation around that oftentimes, but but I think, you found the exact right things to change, oh, you, know, thank you. you know, just to bring it back to King again, that what he said about it, I think is exactly right. It still feels within the spirit of the book. And and it was a moment of realization as a fan sitting in the theater thinking, Oh wait, Oh, oh <laughs> you know, and it just felt, it yeah. felt right. You know, and it was, and it allows someone who knows the material to have an experience like that again, yeah. just like they, they might've had the first time. Well, thank you. That's very, I, that means a lot. And that's, and that's, you know, that's what we were hoping for. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, just tell everybody to go buy it, buy it on DVD or on streaming or however the fuck you do it. Cause that's where I see the, uh, the, the residuals. So, uh, okay. In lieu of following Matt on Twitter, go buy the DVD. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I know. I know. All right. So that's our interview with Matt Greenberg. Josh, thank you so much for that. So why don't we go ahead and jump into some listener feedback? Okay, I wanted to read a little bit of this piece by our listener, Gemma Strange. She writes for horrornews.net, but she sent us her review, or her article, I should say. It's kind of a, an article about the original Pet Cemetery. It's called Grave Encounters, Unearthing Pet Cemetery. It goes into a lot of detail and kind of gets into what we might expect from the new film coming out but i just wanted to read a little portion of this about her experience with it growing up i always like this kind of thing Gemma writes pet cemetery has stuck with me since childhood as somewhat latchkey kids of the early 90s my brothers and i had a faded taped from tv vhs that we used to watch on repeat for the whole summer sometimes we factored in beetlejuice that you know joel you mentioned that yeah maybe being a child of a divorced 
<laughs> family was just a uh, part and parcel with growing up in that era. I, th- I think the latchkey kid thing here rings true for me as well. I, I was one of those two. <laughs> me too. Yeah. And I was always jealous because some of my other latchkey kid friends have like an actual key hanging around their neck that I was <laughs> like on the shoelace. And we had like a hide a key and I would always uh, beg my mom, like, can I get a shoelace and put a key on? She's like, no, what are you talking you'll about? You'll lose no. it. Yeah. Well, not only that, I think she was like embarrassed at the implication oh, that I, I, gotcha. I, gotcha. I wanted to officially be a latchkey kid. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Anyway, sorry. So uh, Gemma writes, Victor Pascal's ghostly harbinger would haunt my nightmares. And I'm not even going to consider discussing Zelda. She's still hidden somewhere in the annals of my subconscious, threatening to scurry back. If given half a moment of consideration, even still when watching as an adult, as soon as the starting credits roll, the imagery and score remain powerful, managing to create a strong visceral reaction. And I'm pleased that these characters still pack a punch, even if the acting is more than a little community theater at times. (laughs) Then she goes on to talk about what we might expect from the new film. She kind of mentions what I do that, you know, on paper, we should probably expect this, is going to be better. Um, she says, there's no doubt that the acting in the 2019 version will be considerably superior. There's no excuse for it not to be. But here I thought was a really interesting way to wrap it up. She says, the truth of the matter is you cannot substitute a horror with character with one that is willing to throw everything at it bar the kitchen sink. Inevitably, it will end up being busier than a three-legged cat in a dry sandbox. Whereas I don't doubt the Pet Cemetery 2019 will be aesthetically impressive in the same vein as it 2017, as is the case with many Hollywood remakes, there tends to be an inverse linear relationship between how polished that movie becomes and the effectiveness of the scares. I thought that was really well put. Yeah, that's excellent. Absolutely. So I'll put a link to Gemma's uh, review in the show notes. If you want to check that out and you can also follow her on Twitter at ruled lines. So thanks Gemma for sending us that. Thank you. That's awesome. So I would like to read a pet cemetery theory courtesy of Sal Roma. So uh, thank you so much, Sal, for sending this in. So apparently he has this theory. Uh, I believe he said, and hopefully I'm not uh, speaking out of school by saying this. I guess he originally sent this out to Jay of the dead many moons ago and uh, Jay never responded. (laughs) So I don't know if that's a, I think it's intriguing. I I will give you that Sal. It is an intriguing theory. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. The the first part where you sort of summarized the whole thing. And then maybe we'll just touch on a couple pieces of uh, your evidence that you lay out. This is a lengthy theory. He has obviously put quite a bit of thought into this. And he said in his email reply to me that he would be happy to post this in the comment section in its entirety. So I hope he will do that because uh, I think it's definitely worth everyone checking out. So the gist of it is this. The basic theory is the vast majority of what happens at Pet Cemetery all happens inside of the mind of Lewis. Gage never came back to life to kill Judd or Rachel. Instead, Lewis is responsible for those deaths. What's easier to believe? A bunch of supernatural things or one man going crazy and killing those closest to him? And then he goes on to provide pieces of support. He starts off with the start of Lewis's mental breakdown. And he said, this whole theory begins with Lewis's first day at work. I think you'd agree with me that his first day was crazy and understandable for why it would mess a guy's mind up. Here he was in a small town expecting an eventful first day and almost immediately a person is dead. And this isn't just a normal death either. Pascal's head was practically falling apart. And I and now this is Joel interjecting into that. And I didn't get to say this earlier. That one moment when they first just do that like smash cut to them carrying his body up with the head hanging mm-hmm. open and everything. When I was a kid, that has always been that image bothered me. 
<laughs> so much when I was 13 years old. Like it just because I wasn't. I mean, no, you don't expect it. Just boom, it's there. Like they right. don't even they don't build up to it at all. So well, it's so unexpected. I actually thought it wasn't real. Like when I was in elementary <laughs> school, we used to do in San Diego. We used to have these like earthquake drills. Sure. And they would you'd go outside, and sometimes it'd be like carrying kids on stretchers and stuff, like to kind of like I don't know emotionally prepare us for what it might look like if it happened. And I just kind of thought it was something like that. Like yeah. A drill. Yeah. So it goes on to say that he, uh, that, you know, Pascal's dead. Lewis is noticeably distraught. Uh, he tells the body of Pascal that Lejo had wished him a good first day by saying not to handle anything more than a hurt arm or something like that. You, you even hear Lewis almost trying to convince the body that he did everything he could to save Pascal, but he was practically dead on arrival. He couldn't have saved Pascal. It's not his fault. That scene is the moment Lewis's mind begins to crack. That's also the point in the film where all the fantastical events of the movie began. Now, as a huge fan of this movie, I will interject and say, yes, technically it is when all the things happen. Um, but my only problem with this setup, self, I'm being honest with you, is that Lewis is a, I presume, doctor from Chicago. And I don't know if they go into this in the book because it's been so stinking long. I, I need to read it again, Josh, along with you, uh, because it's been so long. It's it's almost like I haven't just because I don't remember any of these details. But I thought Let's it was do it. Yeah, Let's I, have a book club after. Yes. Yeah. So yeah we'll do the, uh, the, the horror movie book club. So. I, and I'm going to because I, I felt like in this time watching the 89 version, something the father-in-law says at that uh, mentioned aforementioned funeral scene, he says the line, you killer of children. Mm-hmm. I took it. Like, it suddenly hit me. I'm like, the, and they made the comment that it, you always get this vibe that he was very estranged from his in-laws. And they seemed like very kind of very serious, sort of mm-hmm. very traditional type of folks. I was wondering, could Lewis have been an abortion doctor in... Uh. Chicago, or at least some kind of doctor that dealt with things like that. And that would have been yeah. what led the father. Make. So I guess the reason why I'm saying that is regardless, he's a doctor from Chicago. I'm not saying this wouldn't have bugged him. I don't know if it would have made him crack. Now, if we had had some sort of backstory about how Lewis was already at the point of cracking, which is why they moved out there. And who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe he's already had some kind of issue and he had some kind of PTSD. And, and this does send him over the edge. I, I don't know. You guys have anything you want to pipe in on that? I mean, I think it's an interesting theory. I love fan theories I, like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. I don't know the film as well as you do, Joel, so I I don't have like the same ability to look at it with critical eye. But I, I'll read all of Sal's theory. Yeah, yeah. Sal posted to the website. I want to read it. Yeah, sure. but he go, he does go into a couple other things that are interesting. I think again, the only thing you can't get past the premise of it, though. Well, yeah, that's that's probably the biggest issue. But it's not bad on its theory because I think if I now if I'm taking a step back and I say, okay, if we have to fill in some blanks here, but if we say Lewis was in fact already on the edge, which is why they even moved out here, because right? there is a presumably a reason why they left the city. I mean, you got the vibe there was something up. They didn't want to be out there. So depending on his stress level and everything he was dealing with, maybe he had had a rough patch, which is why his wife makes that comment to him. I just don't know that I take from the pro- and the performance, which I realize you know, goes back to our earlier discussion. The way Lewis is played, though, in those scenes, I don't get a vibe like he's necessarily distraught or super upset other than just like a dang it, you know, like a. I really wish I could help this kid out. You know, like that. I, that's how I took it. But yeah, maybe I'm wrong. I had been wrong before. Please see exhibit a, the mist <laughs> to 99% of the people listening to this. Um, but yeah. So, and, and then of course gauge the fact that 
he does believe like he really does dig Gage up and he thinks he goes through the whole process. I mean, I, I want to read this part, the fate of Gage. He says, I believe Gage really died and chances are exactly how it's shown on the screen. Okay, so we're there. Now there is a chance Lewis's mind changed it up a bit so it was less his fault. It would explain why Rachel's father attacked him at the funeral and why Lewis then uh, invented the scene where his father-in-law apologized and shook his hand. So I see where he's going with it. I think that that is feasible. You could almost make that be the point where it really goes you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Buffs that he he is straight up, you know, when Lewis loses gauge for me would be when he would legit lose it. Crack. Yeah. Yeah. That's when if you're going to find a point where he's going to crack, right. that's the point. Yeah, I, I can see that. So anyway, I think it's great. I mean, I think honestly, you would, in all seriousness, uh, you put a lot of thought into this, man, and it's really, uh, really great. So I think everybody should go to the comments. Hopefully by the time this episode has been out for the day <laughs> he'll have had a chance to post it there or maybe i'll post it there for him if he wants me to uh, either way i definitely think it's worth checking out and like you said guys it's always fun to read fan theories and and i've had uh, a couple of doozies in my day so you should definitely check this one out i think you said this before joel but it's the kind of thing that can only exist in fandom like, yes I, I like oh yeah someday right. we'll have to go into my 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 scream three and if they had ended it this one way it would have been perfect theory <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, we have a new segment, Armchair Filmmaker. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Pimp your movie. All right. So I guess that wraps up this episode of Horror Movie Podcast. Josh, do you want to tell the good people where they can find you online? Yeah, I also just want to remind people our At Your Mercy episode is coming up next, which is a listener pick episode. And a lot of people have already submitted their picks for us to review at the website if you have not yet go to the show notes for this episode so i can find them because i don't want them strewn all about it. i'm not going to be able to track them all down but go to the show notes for this episode and leave the film you would like us to review on our next episode we will each pick one movie from those suggested by the audience i am so that excited one. for this this is my first at your mercy and be cool. i am so excited to see what people have chosen you kind of figure out who likes you and who doesn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah is the goal to show you a good film or to punish you? Yeah, yes. Kagan went so far as to buy me the Blu-ray of the film he wanted me to review last time. <laughs> it worked. Wow. Excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, this is your last chance. Leave your picks for us in the show notes, in the comments for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can find me online at Icarus Arts on Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And that's it. Oh, and one more thing before we go. We did want to mention that, as you many of you may already know, the Horror Movie Podcast is actually been nominated for a Rondo Award, which is an awesome honor. We are completely and totally stoked that this has happened. And we really would appreciate if any of you out there listening would be willing to go and uh, vote for us. So if you're interested in doing that, we will have a link to it in the show notes. Or you can just go on over to RondoAward.com and you'll see the ballot right there for the 17th annual Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. And it's in its final days. So I believe April 21st, Sunday night at midnight is the cutoff. So if you'll go there, you can go through the ballot. You can obviously vote for every possible category they have. Or if you're pressed on time, we totally appreciate it. If you scroll on down, I believe it is category 20 best multimedia site which includes podcasts video sites all that kind of stuff and if you scroll down a little further you'll see us there they're in alphabetical order horror movie podcast so all you have to do is just let them know that you're voting for 
Category 20 Best Multimedia Site and Horror Movie Podcast. You email them, you send that in along with your name, and we're good to go. We got a vote from you. So we'd really appreciate it. So please go ahead and support Horror Movie Podcast in this year's Rondo Awards. All right, Dave. Uh, find me at dvdinfatuation.com, uh, at dvdinfatuation on Twitter, also on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Letterboxd, other podcasts. Obviously, We Deal in Lead, uh, hopefully, will be coming back uh, soon. Universal Monsters cast, also, hopefully, will be coming back soon. And uh, Land of the Creeps with Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet, Jesse Robbins, Justin Beam, and a slew of others. And if you're just hearing about us for the first time, let's say you are a Pet Cemetery fan and you stumbled upon this episode, you might really enjoy our other Stephen King coverage. I will put links to all of our Stephen King episodes in the show note for this episode. Thank you for that, Josh, because they're they're worth listening to, oh. especially for this one idiot guest you guys had on who went on some kind of ridiculous tirade about stuff. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> So I yeah, whatever happened to that guy? I, yeah, hopefully he doesn't podcast anymore. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, I can be found. <laughs> speaking of, I can be found uh, on Retro Movie Geek at retromoviegeek.com with my my wonderful buddies who are all warm and fuzzy, especially that Daryl and Peter, of course, who actually is warm and fuzzy. <laughs> <laughs> and on obviously the Universal Monsters cast as well. And uh, I, I second Dave, and I'm sure Josh when I say it will be coming back soon. I'm sure. We love your comments and hope you'll get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. It's a great group of people. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com, where you can also find all 172 of our past episodes. And you can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorMovieCast. If you'd like to support Horror Movie Podcast, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can get your listener-designed HMP t-shirts at teespring.com slash stores slash horrormoviecast. And you can become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for only $2.50, which gives you access to our monthly special features episodes at patreon.com slash moviepodcastnetwork. We want to thank singer-songwriter Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. We also want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of Fred's original theme, which opens the show. You can find more of Kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com. And that's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again Monday after next for our At Your Mercy episode. And we thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. So this film went through a very long process between the, your initial pitch meeting till the time it came out. And last time we talked to you, I think you had heard, you had said that a friend of yours had called you to say that their daughter had auditioned for the film and you didn't even yeah. know that it was a production at the no, time. No, I mean, and that's the weird thing about Hollywood. I, I, actually, you know, what's, what's funny about that story. When I wrote the script, I said, you know, who, who should be Ellie? It should be this, this young woman. She was a, one of my my daughter's best friends and she's a fantastic mm. actress you know she's been in movies and on broadway and everything like that and also just yeah. like a sweet kid and one of those kids that's able to go you know to that incredibly weird mature place that that mm -hmm. you know it's very very hard to do and of course you know that was back in 2009 2010 and then the movie you know was put on the shelf for a while but she has a younger sister and by the time that the movie actually got made 
you know, the original person had aged out, like, because she was in her in her teens <laughs> now, and now it was like the younger sister, and I'm like, well, wow, <laughs> this would this would be a full circle kind of thing, but. <laughs> to see who gets credit and the determination the whole process is crazy by the way it is but I'll, I'll tell you one thing and this is something your, your your listeners may or may not know as crazy as it is i'd rather have it be that way than have the studios decide because right. the whole thing of, <laughs> no it's seriously it's like the lga yeah. you know you you at least are being arbitrated by fellow writers people who care yeah, yeah exactly and, and who get it and who understand, you know, where things lie and stuff. And, and yes, it's a very chaotic, weird, nail-biting process, you know. And you never know, of course, you know, well, during the arbitration, the arbiters, you know, your scripts are given anonymously, so they don't know who they're arbitrating. And you never know the, the names of the arbitrators. And you either want to, you know, have their babies at the end of an arbitration or bury them alive, you know. It's like, right. And... and, and but it, you know what? It it it's crazy. But hey, man, you know it's <laughs> yeah, it's the way of things. You can train a cat, but you whenever you're doing a movie, you gotta have like eleven cats, right? Because cats mm. are only good usually for a couple takes, and then they get bored and they don't want to do the same thing again, right? right so they, right. they literally had like they had eleven cats, and I think there were two main ones, and there was like the good cat. You know, who was really sad. And then there was the bad cat. And I'm like, I want all these cats. Man, don't tell my wife. She's got, we got plenty of cats. But anyway. Well, they even mentioned on the behind the scenes that I saw that he didn't even want to do this film at all because of the horror. He was like, I'm not doing anything else in the horror genre. And then the cinematographer was like, listen, man, like, trust me, this is a really strong script. And he read it. And apparently he had had a child pass away himself in real life that his son had drowned in a pool and that was the reason he decided to do this movie and he ended up being someone that talked uh oh maybe it was the other way around sorry i apologize <laughs> that was all wrong <laughs> he talked <laughs> the cinematographer he talked the cinematographer into doing the film but oh I, okay okay yeah anyway uh, we, 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 we will go right along with you we're uh, sure we'll go with that we, <laughs> yeah, we didn't know any better I, I hadn't heard that i didn't know that yeah well i think the the reality situation is i think it's interesting that he didn't want to do horror and that's why he didn't necessarily want to do pet cemetery because don't be wrong I, I I will watch the monsters if it comes on TV. I, I oh, you know, yeah. enjoy it for what yeah. it is, but I don't know that the word horror comes to mind when one thinks. No, I get, no, I, I, a comedy, but I get the yeah. connection. I get the connection, but I'm just thinking one was just a comedy that happened to have some iconic horror characters in it. The other is an actual horror movie, so they are kind of distinctly different. But <laughs> one, well, you know, this is much more lowbrow than what you guys are mentioning. But I always think about the Simpsons episode, the Treehouse of Horror episode. Oh yeah, about the monkey's oh, paw. Right, right. That, that was really well sorry. done. <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer used the monkey's paw in a pivotal episode involving another major character. I mean, those that are fans of Buffy know the one I'm talking about. The monkey's paw was a, I mean, at least thematically there was a real, a a good connection to that as well. So yeah, it's had a lot of influence. It's a, it's a really great. Might as well just mention since we've been talking about, you know, Jordan Peele's production company is also called monkey paw Productions. Yes. Yeah, oh, wow. And I love that little graphic at the beginning because it's obviously yeah. a nice mix of get out with the stirring of the spoon. But then it's yeah. actually this little disembodied monkey pot doing it. It was fantastic. 
Reign of Fire's yeah. genius, dude. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> <talking about. laughs> hey, hey, thank you. Oh, no, no. I, I, I love playing Reign of Fire. I tried to get the series <laughs> going. Seriously, I tried to get a series going uh, a couple oh, that, years ago, cool. but uh, unfortunately, uh, that, that, that sputtered and fell. But, you know, I'll oh, give it another I think there'd years. be a taste for that in the Game of Thrones heyday, but... You know, it was interesting. It's that's another story. We 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 could do a whole episode let's, titled. Let's do, whole, let's do a whole separate dragon episode. <laughs> Seriously, no, dude, I would love that. Let's do everything, man. Let's. That <laughs> will get a Dragon Slayer and Game of Thrones, and you know, we'll even throw in Dragonheart, man. Let's do it all. I'm down with that. <laughs>